I mean, when I started touring with dance, I was the only tech guy for Ballet Trocadero. And we were doing one night stands and we were never using any sort of a rental package. So trying to wrangle a light plot out of house gear, get it in the door and the floor down, scenic up, focus, cued, and then do all of that in eight hours and then call the show to people who had never seen it that night. After about three months, I realized that I needed to start catching up on the curve pretty quick if I wanted to eat. Okay. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Talk About the Industry. Today, our illustrious guest is named Steve Shelley. Steve Shelley, whom you may know, is a United Scenic Artist 829 lighting designer, production manager, author, inventor, and graphic designer. He's designed lighting on Broadway, off-Broadway, and at theater, opera, and dance companies around the world. On Broadway, Steve's lighting has been associated with Patrick Stewart's One Man Christmas Carol, Sherry Lewis's Lamb Chop on Broadway, and Bill Irwin's Largely New York and Fool Moon. Steve's lighting can be seen in the repertories of American Ballet Theater, Martha Graham Dance Company, Joffrey Ballet of Chicago, Boston Ballet, and North Carolina Dance Theater. He's designed lighting at the Cannes International Dance Festival, the Spoleto Festival in Italy, the Spoleto Festival USA, and Paul Winter's Solstice Concert at St. John the Divine in New York City. In opera, his lighting has been seen at the Manhattan School of Music and the Connecticut Opera. Steve has toured as a lighting designer, lighting director, and or production manager throughout the USA and four continents, with presentations ranging from Patti Lapone and Larry King to dance companies such as the Bolshoi, Kirov, Paris Opera Ballet, Twyla Tharp, Ballet Trocadero, Jose Limon, and Barishnikov's White Oak. Steve has been a featured seminar speaker for over 30 years at national conventions and conducted seminars and workshops at leading universities on a diverse selection of topics. He also acted as adjunct lighting professor at Rutgers University. Steve's the author and illustrator of A Practical Guide to Stage Lighting, third edition, the inventor of the field template plastic drafting stencils, and the designer of Vectorworks soft symbols, found at fieldtemplate.com. Let's welcome Steve Shelley. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's great and a pleasure to be here as always. And yeah. great to see you and chat with you, Matt. I've known you yeah. for far too many years now. <laughs> yeah, it seems like. <laughs> I think uh, I think our first meeting was at some kind of a dinosaur park in Kansas City. Is that possible? <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite stories, actually. Uh, not many people know that you grew up in Nebraska, I think largely because they associate you with um, NCSA. Uh, but you are dear friends with uh, Dan Stratman and Judy Hart, uh, whom are lovely, lovely people. Uh, Dan actually recently retired from the Lead Center. Um, but All true. I thought yeah. they were going to have to take him out feet first, so I was pretty <laughs> shocked and amazed that he actually made it out, and the keys weren't welded to his forehead. So, <laughs> Yeah. Dan, uh, the Lead Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, I went to uh, university at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and uh, uh, Dan uh, was the production manager of the Lead Center during my time. And you came in for a, a regional uh, USITT conference, and it was in Kansas City, and I was an intern for Dan, and Judy came along uh, as well. Uh, Judy is lovely wife, also a great uh, director and uh, actor. And we drove to Kansas City and I picked you up at the airport with Judy. And I 
I expected one thing and got completely something else. <laughs> I expected wow. you to be uh, stilted like uh, many of the professors that I uh, that I knew over the years, and uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I see. Uh, so uh, that's all good things. <laughs> Did I ask you for any spare change when I got the <laughs> No, it's just a stream of a stream of jokes. And yes, there, it was some kind of uh, dinosaur park in. Kansas City. We were at uh, is it Johnsonville Community College? I honestly don't remember. I have no idea. Somewhere there was a giant dinosaur to rest up. <laughs> yeah, with so. us posing in front of it with our little hand claws <laughs> out, and then a wheel wagons. There were there was a covered wagon display of yeah. some sort as well. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't doesn't give Kansas a, a a great name necessarily, but it's it's a lovely place. <laughs> Really? Come for the Conestoga. Stay for the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I like that. Um, so, yeah, you uh, that was my first interaction with you. You came and did a, a seminar at the at the um, USITT conference and uh, uh, I got to know you a little bit on that trip. And then really, uh, you've just been a fantastic uh, mentor and helpful colleague over the years. I mean, when I started it. Hubbard Street, I kind of had to build my own rep paperwork from the ground up because they had, you know, uh, it was a completely different artistic uh, director, a completely different rep plot. And all the great work that Ryan O'Gara and a lot of others had done was sort of, um, uh, well, it wasn't applicable anymore. And uh, you were really helpful um, with, uh, uh, you know, how to format track sheets and a few other things. You and Todd Clark both really taught me a lot about dance early on. So um, I've always been... Uh, thankful for that. Absolutely. Well, and, and I, I think that rep dance lighting is certainly uh, a graduate degree in itself. Oh my God. I couldn't, I couldn't put it better myself. It really did feel like, like going to a bizarre graduate school I didn't know existed. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, when I started touring with dance, I was the only tech guy for Ballet Trocadero and we were doing one night stands and we were never using any sort of a rental package. It was house equipment every night. So trying to wrangle a light plot out of house gear, get it in the door um, and the floor down, scenic up, focus cued, and then do all of that in eight hours and then call the show to people who had never seen it that <laughs> night. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. After about three months, I realized that I needed to start catching up on the curve pretty quick if I wanted to eat. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> yeah. I, I never left. We, you know, by the time that they came out to do a spacing call at five o'clock and the crew broke for dinner, that's when I was sitting down trying to write all the light cues. Yeah. And Oof. when you're by yourself, you know, it's the challenge is the fact that you're having to constantly re-examine what you yourself are doing. You don't have anybody else to knock information off of. So, uh, and at that point uh, I had just gotten into New York city. Times are completely different and there were no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no barely any reference. Libraries were your only places to go. So trying to come up with how to present information in a logical way Mm -hmm. so that all you had to do was change it quickly for the individual stop was a huge task. And I think being able to pass that on to anyone is um, certainly a skill. And I'm sure that no doubt by this time, you've been doing the same thing to the next generation after you. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing my best. (laughs) 
I think yeah. I think we're all I think those of us that uh, you know the generation that was you and Todd Clark uh, kind of bequeathed the generation that was uh, people like Ryan O'Gara and myself. And I think that those of us that have done well did the same thing that you and Todd did, which was uh, attention to detail and and uh, an efficient use of paperwork. Right? There are plenty of people I think uh, that I've seen kind of over uh, overuse paperwork. Where the and and I had that tendency when I first started. I thought, you know, I would have seven different documents for each piece. And, you know, at a certain point, there was so much redundancy that it was impossible to keep things updated in a timely manner, you know. And if you're touring uh, a one-off dance tour, you know, that's three months long, you can't be referencing seven different documents, you know. Exactly. And I think that certainly being able to uh, rapidly make only the changes necessary for that specific stop and knowing what is a variable and what is a constant in terms of trying to make the light plot happen or or anything else. I I know that uh, I redesigned my call sheets so that I would only have to fill out like five pieces of, of, or five pieces of data. Yeah. And then that would sign in, but I would also take that same document mm-hmm. and uh, photocopy it three time and give one to the house manager, yeah. give one to the head usher yeah. and give one to uh, marketing so that they had all of the answers about the performance. And I didn't have to spend time with that. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think um, I think a lot about like the people that I bring on here, uh, or the people that I've run into in my career, and what their superpower is. And I feel like your superpower is attention to detail and paperwork. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not there your are the own. good days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly not your only superpower. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, you've done uh, uh, so many really interesting uh, things and done them well in your career. But I think that what I see in our interactions and in the work that you've done is a really clear attention to even the smallest of details in the interest of the overall thing going well, you know, and that, that reeks of touring. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, some of that goes along with uh, hand in hand in touring. The fact that uh, certainly I consider every document that I produce, I make certain that I have the information has to get, back in touch with me yeah the 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 axiom is every document you produce is a contact sheet yeah 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 laurel shoemaker says that to her students that your light plot is your calling card yeah exactly yeah i think it's great i and i think you're right i think every document you make is your calling card you know if it's going public to some manner certainly well and and as important in my opinion it is the single way uh, in context on stage when people are standing around and you're not there and they have a question for them to be able to immediately reach out to you to try to answer the question so that they don't make an assumption that then when you walk in the door you say no no I, I when I drew the booms downstage of the proscenium yeah. that was because I ran out of room on the each side of the stage in the drawing that didn't mean that I wanted you to go ahead and create four <laughs> booms each side in the orchestra pit oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that <laughs> sounds like that happened. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Well, you know. <clears throat> we all have those little little beta days, as it were. You know. <laughs> oh man. Well, let's let's back up for a second. Um, uh, I want to talk about uh, how you got interested in in theater, uh, and I also want to talk a little bit about since you're the first lighting designer that I've had on the show. 
I think most people listening to it will have a pretty clear understanding of what an LD does, but I'd love to give a little bit of contextual information specifically about, you know, the difference between lighting design and lighting direction, uh, which you and I both have done a lot of that work. Um, but let's back up. So you, you are, you're growing up in, is it Omaha, right? No, no, in Lincoln. In Lincoln, really? Oh, wow. Yep. And a half block south of uh, Bryan Hospital, which came in awfully handy yeah. because by the time I was 10, the entire emergency room staff knew my mom's name very well. <laughs> oh, man. You know? Well, Mrs. Shelley, what did Steve do today? You know? Oh, my, that shouldn't be there, should it? Ooh, look at all the blood. So, and oh, then man. eventually I ended up. I ended up being the paper boy for the hospital. And oh, wow. uh, so I ran through the hospital twice a day, made a lot of friends yeah. over the years. And uh, instead of selling subscriptions, I sold individual papers and um, amount ended up uh, saving enough money that that basically paid for my college education. Wow. So that by the time I got out of School of the Arts, I didn't have a student debt at all. Wow. Knock, knock. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. Think, I think- that's really important. I've had that conversation with a lot of people in the last ye- few years. Uh, I think education in general, particularly uh, MFAs, have gotten so expensive mm. that you know what we. I think it's. I think the lighting world has expanded, but I don't think that it's expanded so much that you can guarantee being able to pay off you know two hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. I think that's ridiculous for any industry, truthfully, but particularly for ours. Absolutely. I, so on that topic, when yeah. I see uh, folks that are getting ready to educate with an undergraduate degree and the consistent question is, should I go on and get an MFA? Yeah. My first response is, do you believe that there is going to be a time in your life when you want to teach? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, experience is one thing, but human resources is another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it took me seven years to get a BFA. Yeah. And by the time that I got done with that, I decided that I was going to take a year off or two to yeah. merely kind of get my feet on the ground and decide what I really wanted to do. And after a couple of years, I found myself touring and designing light in Europe. Yeah. And my reaction to, okay, so I want to stop doing this so I can go back to an MFA program and have some person that's never done this tell me how to do it. Right. And my answer was no. Yeah. But by the same token, now years later, I never got an MFA. And consequently, folks will call up and say, can you come teach here? And my my I have to respond and say, I didn't get an MFA. I don't have one. And they yep. say, well, that doesn't matter to us, but HR demands it. So I'm sorry we can't offer you anything. And then the phone hangs up and that's the end of it. Yeah. So it's a bizarre. Um, and I've uh, my father, who's a dean of fine arts and former opera singer, uh, he and I have talked about this a lot over the years. Uh, similarly to in performance, you know, he was at he was at a university where um, one of the uh, upper administration were they were complaining about the number of music professors that didn't have a Ph.D., and his response was like, well, that's not, you know, nobody gets a PhD in opera performance or in musical theater performance, right? If they do, they're a historian, which is, you know, right. a very singular skill set. Uh, and I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of other industries uh, don't understand, you know, I mean, uh, an MFA teaches you a lot of things, but it doesn't, but an MFA is not experience, right? They're separate. And both are valuable, but but for very different ways and um, for very different reasons. And I think a, a lot of the 
more high profile programs uh, put a lot less weight on it. You know, it's I've seen it. I've seen it actually at pretty much every university I've ever had a um, uh, a connection to. Same the same thing where it's like, and I and I'm not I'm I'm not interested in teaching. Uh, certainly not right now. And I you know it's not something that I've explored. But even being on acting on search committees or right, you know, trying to help them recruit faculty in some manner. You know, it's it's a it ends up being kind of a really bizarre hurdle. Right. I mean, the one that you just got done doing, you know, you really couldn't even start looking at anyone specifically unless they had that on their resume to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's that there's that sentence or equivalent experience, which. Yeah. How how literally do they take that? And the answer is, I don't think they take it very literally at all, at least not typically. No, no. So exactly. I mean, the other reason I think to go ahead and get an MFA is if it gives you the opportunity to go ahead and actually have someone that you look up to actually be forced to be your mentor within the classroom and in the practical experience. And uh, I think that if you're looking for an MFA program, that you have to do your analysis mm-hmm. of who's teaching there yeah. and how much they are actually going outside of the classroom yeah. and doing shows on their own and hopefully taking you as an assistant. Yeah. Or how much are they actually going to be allowing you to design and them go ahead and watch you and critique you as you're designing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just uh, I looked at a kid's portfolio yesterday and I started looking at his photographs and saying you're. Kind of stuck in a rut here you've got like saturated saturated watches and then you've got downlight pools and that's the only way you're highlighting didn't anybody ever say to you go ahead and put in some high sides right go ahead and bring in some shins or anything else to pop them out sure versus everyone else and the guy said i wish i'd met you like three years ago (laughs) yeah yeah oh man yeah it's i think feedback at any level is super important um, and I, I hear what you're saying about a mentor. When I started at Hubbard Street, Todd Clark was the interim production manager. And so I had a solid uh-huh. six months with him where he was just bridging the gap, but he was also teaching me how to tour their second company and teaching me how to how to handle the paperwork associated with the rep plot. And then when they hired the the production manager after him in a more permanent position, uh, they, you know, it wasn't a production manager that uh, could also light. And so they needed a lighting director. And I, and Todd, I mean, Todd's no dummy. He, he was like, gee, Matt knows all, everything right now about the light plot. Maybe you should hire him, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> but he and exactly. I have talked about that because uh, we've worked together a lot over the years and I still, um, I still do uh, associate work for him and I, I program for him and you know, the, the shorthand that's there is really, uh, it's really fun for both of us, but he, you know, uh, I kind of stumbled into his life exactly at a time when he needed, uh, you know, an assistant and an associate and it just, right. You know, it's kind of dumb luck. And to a degree, those are the same kind of relationships that you can develop with directors or choreographers yeah. that after you've established that language, no, 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 we're going to do it like, remember that dance two years ago <laughs> yeah. where they went ahead and they came on and then the stage went to black accidentally? Yeah, yeah let's do something like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's based upon a shared experience, Yeah, which yeah. then gets into the whole realm of if you are a lighting director yeah. and you are putting up a dance that was last seen and approved by both the lighting designer and the choreographer, uh-huh. that when you have then the ballet master or someone else who's resetting it suddenly say, we need another cue here, yeah. then 
as the director, you have to ask yourself, or at least them, can you tell me why you think this is so? Is this a conversation you ever had right. with both of them? Right. And when the response is, well, no, I used to do the dance, and I always thought there should have been a cue there. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> that's you about you. <laughs> yeah, that's great I, but. yeah <laughs> i put one there didn't you see it <laughs> yeah oh, right. you just missed it you know, the lights. <laughs> oh it was a zero count maybe you blinked your eyes <laughs> oh yeah i've had i think i've only had a couple of conversations like that uh and and typically when something like that has come up it's been uh in an environment where somebody above them saw it and was like no <laughs> Right. And to a degree, that's another thing that you got out of Todd was navigating all of the political waters as well. Yes. You know, absolutely. and being able to watch somebody else navigate all of that arena of psychological stuff that's completely separate yeah. from doing any of the lighting or having anything to do with any of the concepts whatsoever for any of the produced pieces, whether yeah. it's dance, opera, straight stage or whatever. Yeah. You know, let's go back. Initially, you said, let's go ahead and talk about a lighting designer and the difference. So for me, a lighting designer is the person that is assigned the task to be the overseer and the representative of controlling the visual environment of wherever you are as an observer. Yeah, that can be when you are a member of the audience and you're looking at the stage, then the lighting designer technically is responsible for everything that happens even mm -hmm. before the curtain goes up until yeah. it's down. Yeah. In some cases, the designer also uh, is also responsible for all the house lighting, mm -hmm. for the way that the house is lit, the way yeah. that the aisle lights are lit. Yeah. Sometimes the lighting designer may also have a hand or be thrust into dealing with, you know, how the bathrooms are lit, how the lobby is lit, yeah, how the exterior sure. is lit, all of those facets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then if you take it on a broader stroke, certainly the lighting designer, that title can be applied to anyone who is designing the architectural lighting yeah. for either inside or outside of a building, yeah. for inside or outside of a museum exhibit, for outside or inside of a hotel, to the hotel room, to the hotel lobby. All of these things where you're not actually just being controlled by God and the sun, <laughs> all of those yeah. are at least influenced by the lighting designer. The lighting director, on the other hand, as I think is a term for someone who is there uh, and is the fundamental task is to oversee the replication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to make certain that, again, whatever the choreographer in this case or the lighting designer together went ahead and agreed for each cue, that is the correct state to represent the intent of your work and your concept, then then your job as the lighting director is to go ahead and make it look something like that every time as good as you possibly can. Yeah. You yeah. know, now if that maybe range from you're walking in and remounting the same rental package that you had when the piece was originally done sure. to you're in you're in Montevideo and all you have is a bunch of coffee cans and you're somehow trying to rehook all of the extension cords with wire nuts to put them together so that you can put up something that looks like what Jennifer Tipton last saw when she said it on Twyla Tharp. <laughs> oh man. I love your examples because they get so specific, specifically traced to I'm sure real life stories. Every one of them is the loss of more hair. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm surprised you have any. <laughs> yeah. it, it, seems, it seems to get reduced on a daily basis these days. So. I, uh, uh, I definitely agree with that um, assessment of designer versus director. I think a lot of um, 
lay people, shall we say, might go to a concert and see somebody running the board and they think, oh, the lighting designer, and they don't uh, associate that the design process is separate from the implementation process or the, or the recreation process, you know? Uh, and I found for me, uh, I'm curious about you. I, all of the work that I did as a lighting director made me a better designer, whether I understood that it was or not, specifically because I had to be clear about, uh, I had to take a look at a lighting design and say, okay, this is the overall style and, and the overall elements, right? This is how he or she implemented those and and break it down to true design intent and some sort of documentation of that design intent, both in kind of an abstract and in a practical way. Absolutely. And so then when I got to a place where I was designing much more than making my own, you know, than, than being only a lighting director, my design choices were, were better and more easily replicable. Yeah, it's certainly more clear. I think that in the beginning, when you're putting somebody else's stuff up, if nothing else, you have to acknowledge the fact that at a specific point in the score, the text, the song, the, the piece, yeah. that the lights are changing. And you have to understand what the lighting designer wanted to happen and why they wanted it to happen and why they wanted it to change at that speed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that after you get more of a grasp and an understanding of that, that when you are yourself or the designer, that you are realizing that you have to apply the same tactics because you have so little time to typically in stage time to actually make it happen. So you need to have an idea after your analysis of the piece, what has to happen for every light change? Why is it happening? And how long is it going to take for that to happen? And have that in some sort of a format so that when you do actually get on stage to make this happen, you can, you're not trying to make those decisions at that time. Right. And be able to ponder and sit back and think and maybe a five count, maybe a seven is like, yeah. make it a 10 and just keep moving. Yeah. And I think that um, after having done it for some amount of time, the thing that young folks don't realize mm-hmm. immediately is that every movie that you've ever seen where they go and now let's go into the technical rehearsal and everyone is sitting there and they're (laughs) casually smoking cigarettes and oh let's have another martini that that just doesn't happen i mean uh, doesn't you know certainly uh, a high slash low point would have been american ballet theater where Mm -hmm. we would uh go ahead and focus the show and then uh, come back on the or in that morning, focus mm-hmm. the show and cue it. Mm-hmm. That afternoon, do three run-throughs, yeah. one without the orchestra and two with the orchestra. Yeah. And then we opened it that night. Oh, wow. So there was no time for any pussyfooting around yeah. or <laughs> let's go ahead. Well, we'll do it in tomorrow's cue level setting session. Oh, no, that's now, <laughs> you know, because yeah. we're going to go to lunch and we're coming back. Yeah. And now we're going to beat this to death three times and then it's opening. And literally, there were times when in the first rehearsal, they suddenly realized that there was a huge snafu in terms of focus. And while the dance was happening downstage, yeah. we were bringing the man lift on in the fifth wing upstage and oh refocusing gear. Oh, with wow. the pants are still running around going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And of course, you know, then the choreographer, in this case, Twyla Tharp, is going insane. And then Jennifer Tipton saying, we have to do it now. 
Right. We, we yeah. have no choice. Yeah. You know, and on top of all of that, especially in dance, when you've got a live orchestra, right. the costs are just astronomical. Yeah. You've got yeah. 42 people that are getting paid on an 802 minimum. Yeah. And they are wailing away. And after they go past that time limit, they're all going into overtime. So there's no comfort or luxury to merely ponder, sit around and have another glass of, of wine or maybe a cup of coffee and think about it. It has to be absolutely knee-jerk reaction so that the more you, that you have it planned, regardless of whether you're the designer or the director or the lighting coordinator or whatever title you want to give to it, if you're the person saying the final say, then you need to be able to do it and do it quickly. And a lot of that, me, for my money, comes back into planning. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I, I like to say that um, as lighting designers, we do all of our work in front of everyone at the last minute without enough time to do it. And so if you're not okay with that, then you should, you know, then you should uh, reassess your career choice. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, it's not to say, I mean, each job is different, I think, in terms of your level of support and the level of preparation that you were able to to give to it and the, you know, the resources available, all of that. Right. But at the end of the day, it's still, as you've described, like, uh, you know, you are doing an immense amount of work in a short period of time. Correct. Taking that back a, a, a small step, when you talk to folks and they say, I want to be a lighting designer, that being a lighting designer in college is a lot more um, warm and fuzzy. Yeah, it is. You know, they want you You are encouraged to fail. You can go ahead and no, we'll try it again. No, it's OK. It'll all be better. And then professionally speaking, it's not OK. And if right. it isn't OK, then you're looking for a job somewhere else. Yeah, you have got to have your speed ramped up to the nth degree in a professional mm -hmm. situation in order to succeed. Yeah. I mean, coupled with the fact that in the professional situation, uh, the amount of money that you get paid has little to do with the amount of time that you've spent on it. Yeah. Stagehands always get paid on an hourly basis. Designers get paid on a fee. Mm -hmm. So if you're getting paid a fee of say $3,000, Mm -hmm. If you spend, say, only four hours of prep and then you go into a theater and you can do it in three, then mm -hmm. that's a great fee because you're yeah. by the hour making great money. Yeah, but typically sure. the amount of effort, research, meetings, mm -hmm. preparatory, uh, going over to check out costume swatches, scenic meetings, all of that, yeah. the amount of time slowly but surely mounts up and suddenly you discover you're at about $5 an hour. <laughs> so the faster... Yeah. That you can put your package together and the faster that you can have the decisions made and the faster that you can generate your paperwork means that you can do that much more on some other project and do two or three of them at the same time yeah. and actually hope to get a living wage. You know, and for some people, when they discovered that, they go, you know, this seemed like a really good idea and I like to make pictures and I wanted to be on Broadway, but this is not the tempo right. that I thought it was going to be. At which case you say, this is not a fault. Right. It, yeah. It, you know, if you if you if this is no longer the thing that gives you pleasure, if this is no longer the thing that you have to do, mm -hmm. then by all means, do something else. Yeah. You know, if folks say I want to be a designer, but I don't think I can handle New York, then the response is then don't be here. Go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. go to a location that gives you pleasure, that that gives you fulfillment, yeah. that allows you to have a life. Yeah. Uh, I 
there's no bones down about, you know, oh, my God, the only place is New York. And that's an absolute falsehood. Yeah. yeah. There are there's the well, there was <laughs> there are theaters all over America and right. all over the world. Right. There's different forms all over the place. And you don't necessarily have to be on Broadway. You don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in commercial theater. You can find as much fulfillment. I mean, friends of mine are architectural lighting designers. It takes them longer to put a project together. But once they get the project together and it's up, it's, it's there forever as long as the building stands. You know, and I think that there's something to be to take for that for a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, 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 it's so, I think it's so important for people to hear you say that because there are, I think in any of the, of the theatrical arts or the creative arts, I think people, it's so easy for uh, people to get locked into, well, I, you know, I said I was going to go to New York, you know? Well, okay, but right. what if you get offered a job in San Francisco? What if you get offered a job in Austin, Texas, right? Like that doesn't, right. you know, that's a deviation from maybe a plan that you made at 18, 19 years old. Exactly. There's no version of that plan where you have all the information, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I was talking to a, a young friend mm-hmm. who, uh, in the midst of this pandemic, mm-hmm. was saying, perhaps I should go back into architecture. Perhaps I should go into architectural design. Oh, interesting. And But if I do that, one of the offers that I have takes me outside of New York City, and I would actually be working down in Miami, Florida, on this architectural degree for over the span of three years. Am I going to lose all contact? Will I ever work in theater again? Steve, what should I do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the answer is, I don't know, beats me. Right. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, I think I see a lot of, uh, in the conversations that I have with kids that are in school or about to leave school, I see a lot of uh, what you got from that conversation, which is, which is, can you make this decision for me? so that I don't have responsibility over it. And that in and of itself is the conundrum, right? Because if you are able to take responsibility over the decision and and then make a well-informed decision, you're right. There can be regret in any choice, right? But that doesn't mean that- Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't mean you made the wrong choice. It means that you made a choice, an informed choice. And if you feel good enough about it that you can take responsibility over it, then you're- then in my experience, you're not going to have regrets over it. I I was in Chicago. I moved to Chicago right after school. And then at a certain point, I went freelance. I left Hubbard Street and I moved to New York. And five years later, I moved out. And I, uh, you know, I didn't regret going there and I didn't, didn't regret leaving. But right. th- both of those were informed choices that I took full responsibility over because it was my life. If somebody had told me to go to New York, I would have been miserable the entire time I was there. And if somebody had told me to leave, I would have felt like a failure, you know? But the reality is I, you know, they, they were the right decisions at the time, you know, and I'm, I've been happy with both of them, you know? Right. And I mean, those are the choices that are made for you. I know that my life uh, completely swung on a car wreck that I had in Atlanta in 1977. Wow. And because of that, instead of moving out to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. I hung around Atlanta for an additional month because I had to wait for the trial, the civil (laughs) trial with a broken arm, which is when I learned how to type on a typewriter using my right hand only, (laughs) trying to write, uh, you know, application letters Mm -hmm. near to whom it may concern. Uh 
uh, this this letter will be brief. It's only one hand. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but but because of that. And because of the wreck and because I was delayed, I ended up getting back in touch with some contacts that I had in Atlanta. That ended up turning into a job offer to move to Austin, Texas, get my equity card and work at a dinner theater of all places. And by moving to Austin, I then met the person that inevitably turned around and hired me to be the technical director at the Milwaukee Ballet a year later. And then in Milwaukee, I had the opportunity from there to go ahead and talk to someone who said, come to New York and pick up this costume collection mm-hmm. that you'll use in the next. And when I drove to New York, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I ended up meeting a couple of folks. And within three days, I was trying to interview to get a job in New York and not come back to Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah. And it all goes back to the car wreck. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you make your best choices as you possibly can. But later on in your life, you may go back and analyze the fact that indeed everything swung on a single incident right. that really fundamentally changed your life. Right. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So, so when you had this car wreck, you were you had you had finished your degree at NCSA, right? Uh, yes, I had. Yes, I had finished at NCSA of uh, 77 and I had uh, gone to Atlanta, worked at a nightclub, yeah. left that, did a tour out of Columbia, South Carolina, mm-hmm. then uh, came back to Atlanta, freelanced and then worked in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and two or three other cities and then uh, went to L.A. Mm-hmm. and uh, ran into friends. Yeah who, as it turned out, were roommates with Robin Williams. <laughs> and they said, come on and move out here. We have a great time. And they yeah. were crazy. And I went, I'm here. Yeah. So, And I didn't know Los Angeles at all. So I went back to Nebraska, bought a van, yeah. drove it around, and then was coming back through Atlanta to pick up my gear yeah. to go ahead and move out to L.A. And instead, the car wreck forced me to reevaluate. Wow everything and i ended up in texas instead wow that's fascinating <laughs> yeah well i think the 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 through line there is a willingness to go where the job takes you you know and to go where the opportunity takes you certainly and being willing to go where you don't know anyone yeah i mean yeah. Uh, that and that can be really really tough uh, you yeah. know i think one thing that never is stressed enough is that initially when you're getting out and you're going to places that you don't know that it is awfully gosh darn lonely yeah and i will certainly say that over the years in my mind mm-hmm. one of the lonelier positions for me at least mm-hmm. in theater has been uh the lighting designer yeah because you come in at the last minute you're watching a rehearsal or two mm-hmm. you're working on stage with a crew that you barely know yep. when everybody else gets there the only place that you can be found is at the tech table right. so you're never talking to anyone backstage you get the show open and as soon as it's open and the piece is being produced you're out of a job and they throw you out the door yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah it can it can be tough psychologically. Yeah, you know? it can. Yeah, when I first uh, uh, and I, I was actually telling this to my buddy Joe on his podcast, uh, which is nothing to do with theater or lighting and everything to do with um, masculinity. Uh, I we were when I first moved to Chicago, I was uh, I was so excited to finally be out of school and be in a place where I was working. And the day the the truck that I moved into the city with we used to pick up lumber for the set that I, for the storefront theater show. <laughs> and so we, so we dumped off my stuff at my, uh, at my uh, friend's house. Uh, and then we 
grabbed the lumber and then we all, it was a Friday night. So we all had kind of a little party. And then Saturday morning, we had a production meeting across the street at a coffee shop. And Saturday afternoon, I found myself sitting on a couch crying, wondering why I was crying because, and it was entirely about like, I had been in, uh, uh, in sort of get things done mode. And it was a first moment of time that I had to myself from like two weeks previous when I was packing everything up uh, and trying to sell all my possessions possible to then being in Chicago and realizing like, oh yeah, I moved to a city where I don't really know a lot of people. And uh, suddenly like, I don't have, you know, I don't have a class I have to go to. I don't have a meeting, right? Like, and it was a really interesting realization because I uh, I ended up talking to my father uh, and I was like, I don't know why I'm having this reaction. And he said, well, do you want to come live with us in Kansas? And I was like, no. And he's like, okay, well, then you're nervous. That's it. Like it's, you know, uh, and, the, uh, and I, I think about that moment quite a bit because, uh, and I end up telling a lot of students who are, who I can tell are nervous about going someplace you know, because it's easy to look at someone like you or me and think like, oh, well, uh, you know, their careers worked out. So obviously every choice they've made, they've been completely confident about it and they've never had any <laughs> doubts or fears or trepidations. And it's like, that's that's not true. Right. You know, our, our no, lives are no. like everyone else's lives. There are moments yeah. that are difficult and moments that are lonely and moments that are fun and great. And I think what you're talking about, uh, uh, has a lot to do with why our connections in this industry uh, end up being so fun and so deep with our sort of extended family, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got two families, yeah. the one that you were born with and the one that you make, you know, and I know that, you know, let's go back to your, your moment of being on the couch. It seems to me that that was like a, the moment where finally you were shed of all of the responsibilities of the college life and all that. Right. But it was also suddenly there was a vacuum of structure yeah, that yeah. you no longer had anyone telling you what or where you had to be. Yeah. And suddenly that just collapsed in on you yeah. and you're trying to figure out, you know, should I get a cup of coffee or do I need to go to a library? Right. Do I need to research this? Do I need to buy, you know, drafting utensils? What do I do? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, when you, when you finally get out of the college life mm -hmm. and you move into a new city, yeah. whether you or not, you have contracts, friends or anything mm -hmm. else. If you don't have a job, yeah. it is crushing. Yeah. It is absolutely beating. And, you know, you really do need to, I think, as a young person, be able to start figuring out what the tactics and techniques of your marketing and your ability to make decisions and the, the, some, the research that you need to undergo yeah. to start figuring out where the jobs are or yeah. who to talk to. Yeah. And I know that when I first came to New York, I didn't have any of those skills. Mm -hmm. And yeah. consequently, I was just throwing jello at the tree and every party that I went to, <laughs> yeah, I was taking business cards and trying to talk to anyone. Yeah. And at that point I didn't have the clarity or have anyone to tell me yeah. what you are first perceived as is what they think you are. Yes. That's, and important. when I went to those parties in my first year in New York, mm -hmm. they said, well, what are you? And I said, anything you want me to be, <laughs> I can build that cabinet. I can go ahead and paint that cabinet. Right. I can light that cabinet. Right. I can do everything. And it was like, Okay, so your resume reflects that. Your resume says, I want to eat. Yeah. That is my objective. <laughs> yeah. 
And to those folks, now I say, let's go ahead and look at the skills that you have and let's formulate mm. two or three solid resumes that represent yes. you in your strengths. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and for, for folks that we talk to, inevitably, mm-hmm. that usually turns into one resume that is the lighting designer slash assistant lighting designer, mm-hmm. a second one that's the master electrician slash yep. assistant master electrician, yep. and sometimes the third is the programmer. Yeah. Having someone to, if nothing else, point out where you need to start going to get your skills into a box and making sure that as you present yourself in every conversation, you have a clarity as to what you're walking in with. Right. You know, for some folks, I say that means that you have three business cards. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. or you go ahead and you have all three copies of the resume on your phone as PDFs. Right. So that when someone wants it, you can send them to text with the PDF as an attachment. Yeah. And as soon as they've had the conversation concluded, they've got that specific resume at hand. Yep. You can be able to reach out and study what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important. Uh, and it's, it's something that's not stressed enough is just, you know, I think uh, it's, tough for people that don't like talking about themselves to want to talk about themselves. Uh, and I, I was just having this conversation a week or two ago with someone, uh, uh, with a, a kid that's just leaving grad school. Um, and I essentially said that like, you know, don't think of it as you're telling them how good you are at these things. You're just trying to convey a skill set, right? Right. So, and I, I think it's idea. If you focus on, I, I can do this. I have done this. This is when I did it. You know, then it's less about like, well, I hope that they'll think I'm good enough and much more about like, this is where I am right now. Right. Right. And, and nine times out of 10, I typically advise folks if they've got a resume and they're trying to get someone to look at it, to present it to the person and ask them for their feedback. Yeah. And to see if they have any comments, because everybody knows how to do a resume. And indeed, as they're providing you with the feedback, they're reading and analyzing your resume and it's starting a conversation. And after a point, that's the initial pur- purpose of the resume in the first place. Right. Yeah. Just be able to start talking and be able to compare experiences and, well, have you done this? And how did you do that? Did you find a huge challenge was this? Well, when the back of the truck fell off, what did you do then? Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, those sorts of points that yeah. indeed, if you just present them with the resume and say, here I am, I'm the guy you're looking for, they'll look at it and say, okay, that's nice next. But if you approach them with the, I could use your help, mm-hmm. it's a completely different um dialogue. Yeah. And I think you get a lot more out of it. And you're certainly talking to somebody that's going to provide you with not so much a judgment of each skill that you provided mm-hmm. or each experience that you provided, mm-hmm. but go ahead and analyze how you put it together, yeah. how you did it. And maybe you can do it in a different way so that they're having to ask fewer questions. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I think that also, you know, when you talk about every piece of paperwork is your calling card, uh, how your how you handle that conversation is really how they're going to make a determination about you. You know, I've had uh, I've had students reach out to me that uh, clearly were only doing it because their professor told them they should, and they had you know had no interest in it. And I'm sure that happens to you as well. And then you know I might respond, uh, and, and I typically you know whenever that happens because I I had a lot of help coming up, you know, from you, from Todd, from Laurel, from so many, so many folks in my life, uh, that I feel a responsibility to when I can, you know, provide someone with similar help to what I got. Right. Uh, 
And if that's just clarity on on a resume, great. If that's trying to connect them with a shop in, uh, you know, Seattle because they're moving to Seattle, okay, great, or whatever. But I, I, you can tell if you get contacted by someone that like, my professor told me I should do this, you know, and I'll write back and then I'll hear nothing from them. Right. You know? Right. And I, I think like, okay, that tells me much more about you than anything that you gave me on the resume, you know? Absolutely. Well, and certainly whenever I have an exchange with uh, a young person and at the end of it, then I usually summarize it and I say, okay, so here are our tasks Mm -hmm. before we get together the next time. I'm going to provide you with this contact or this phone number, introduce you to so-and-so. You're on the other hand, you're going to provide me with X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And nine times out of 10, I will come home, sit down, write the emails, write the stuff, forward them the links Mm -hmm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. and never hear a word back from them. Oh, so frustrating. And that in itself, you know, I mean, the number one thing, if you meet with somebody and you're trying to impress them, that if there is a task given to you by the end of the interview, the first thing that you do when you get home is do that task. Yes. If you say that there's something that you're going to do, then do it. Do not wait for breakfast. Don't wait until after you watch the cartoon. Do it first and show that you can put up and do the walk and you can do the talk. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. I have a, uh, when I light for Bally, Idaho, I have a really fantastic assistant named Brandon and he, um, uh, it's been so fun to see him. He is recently out of undergrad and his, uh, his, um, level of detail and stick to and get it done immediately. Ivness, right. <laughs> However you want right, to right. label those is outstanding. I mean, general work ethic. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and he, he also, um, he's a great combination. I, you know, I, and I've said this to him, you know, anything that I can do to help him move forward, like, you know, I will do it because, uh, when I see, he's also a good person, right? So when I see a good person who is, uh, doing good work and is intelligent, but also emotionally intelligent and treats everyone around him with respect, then to me, that's like, ding, 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 you've hit the jackpot, right? And that person should get all the, uh, all the help they, they need. Um, but when I first met him, he was, he, uh, uh, and this happened to me early on too. He was really focused on, uh, on what he knew and what he didn't know. And he was, you know, sort of worried about, uh, about not knowing things that he isn't expected to know, you know? Right. And, uh, uh, I, you know, it's kind of like, um, <laughs> It's, you know, it's kind of like um, being, uh, you know, going to the bank with $10,000 in cash and being worried that the envelope is wrinkly that's holding it. You know, it's like, it's like you, you have $10,000. Like, that's a good thing, you know, yes. and that's mostly what I have said to him over the couple of years that we've been working together is like, you have all of the things that are difficult to teach and that uh, people expect and value much more so than have you used Augment 3D yet? You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, the showing up on time, the detailed paperwork, the and and the very first thing, and the first thing that indicated to me that he was a really good assistant was exactly what you said. We had a, an email exchange before the first show I designed there where we introduced ourselves and I gave him, at some point I gave him a really small paperwork task, uh, you know, and he did it immediately and asked for feedback. 
uh, right. every, everything that he, every project we've worked on, everything that he's done for me as an assistant has been that same way. You know, right. he'll do the task really well. He'll ask for feedback. I'll give it to him. And he makes changes based on the feedback. It happens in a timely manner. You know, that like you can have that. I feel like you can have that skill set and have no idea what Vectorworks is or no idea what photometrics are and be a better professional assistant than most of the people out there. Absolutely. I think that there's certainly something to be said for being able to resent something and getting feedback and yeah. then what your response is to that feedback. Yeah. Uh, I've done several United Scenic Artists uh, exams. Yeah which now in New York is a presentation of a portfolio yeah. or at least one show out of the portfolio. And it pretty much drops into about three categories. You have the folks that come in, they're all nervous. Sure. So yeah. we all were at that time, but the first category will go ahead and present their stuff. And then they get challenged by somebody or somebody says, why did you do it this way? Or I think that's wrong and you should have drawn it with this line weight. Yes, they get that anal. <laughs> and those kind of folks will do nothing but be defensive yeah. and and be, well, no, I did because I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And there's that false bravado and that false confidence. And you go, okay, that's one category. The second category are the folks that come in and they just kind of look at it and then you tell them, you give them ideas or say, did you compare this to that? Or have you tried looking at it? So the focus on the paperwork is more clear mm -hmm. and they go, oh no. And they're just a whip puppy. Yeah. And yeah. the third category and the folks that I'm naturally ready to pass on are the folks that when you say, what about this and what about that? And they pull out a red pen. Yeah or a Sharpie yeah. and they just mark the paperwork right there and start oh, wow. making notes of, okay, I need to at least consider that. I may not want to do that in the future, but I will go ahead and take your suggestion. I will record it and I will at least go ahead and place it here yeah. so that I can come back and look at it at a later time. Yeah. And I will be listening to everything you have to say to a degree so that I, it looks at least in this conversation sure. that I think that you have a clue as to what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. And, and, you know, when you find somebody like your Brandon or mm -hmm. when you find somebody that is listening at to what you're saying and knows when to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Or takes, takes responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, certainly fesses up to making a mistake. Right. Huge, huge hurdles to be able to get over. And the sooner that a young person can do that, then the better. Um, but there's always that initially when you're coming out of college, yeah. you've got a degree. You're supposed to be smart now. And you walk in, and you're starting to interview with these people who have years of experience ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And all you can do is end up being defensive because you don't know how else to act. And I think that that comes with the experience of interviewing a great deal. Yeah. And then eventually going ahead and starting to work with folks and understanding that they're not just saying you're an idiot. They're asking you why you did that because it didn't fit in with their norms. So listen to them and find out why they thought that was a problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's so telling uh, when people get defensive or not uh, in, in any kind of situation, but particularly in an interview, you know. And, and to that end, if you are trying to make a career as a designer, it's not like every choice that you make, you know, people are going to be like, that looks great and not give you any feedback or direction. Um, um, right. Quite the opposite, you know. I mean, many, many choreographers and directors after, you know, at least in my experience, after a number of shared experiences, right, like you develop a shorthand and it gets easier. But right. there's always feedback, 
you know. Inevitably, yes. Yeah, and if not, it means they're not paying attention and, you know, and that's that's worse to me. Right, well, and when you go into dance, then that shorthand can become so critically important because you have to learn their language. With one guy that I worked with for years, he would turn to me and he would say, it doesn't have the magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, hang on, let me get the thesaurus here real quick, magic, magic, magic. And eventually I figured that for him, that meant it didn't have enough sidelight. They yeah, weren't cut out yeah, enough. Gotcha. There wasn't enough plasticity or three-dimensionality, yeah. right? Um, I had another choreography that says it's not romantic enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for that choreographer, mm-hmm. uh, that meant that she wanted it more blue. Interesting. Yeah. Or it's not sexy enough. Right. Sure. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, I <laughs> you know, and that gets into you know, depending on for that choreographer, it was more saturates, uh, primarily back to reds and maybe oranges and 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 uh, yellows, but all satin, no pastel, no pussyfooting around. You know, <laughs> you're gonna go there, go there, yeah, yeah. Get the color trawl and just start like <laughs> laying on the roller presses. Like, there's some more R twenty six. My God, <laughs> oh, that's great. I, um, I've had, uh, uh, and I'd love to, I'd love to, to discuss this further because I think one of the most interesting things that we have to do as lighting designers and lighting directors is interpret what other creative artists are saying to us and interpret it quickly and in practical terms, right? Absolutely. When I was at Hubbard street, uh, Glenn Edgerton, the artistic director, uh, he and I had, it took us, uh, uh, the better part of a year to really get to understand how to communicate mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. First is I took that job very green and very young. And uh, while I had the potential to do it well, it was a, it was a rough start just because of, uh, you know, of a gap in, ex- in my own experience. Uh, and thankfully I, I had a great crew and Todd did a lot of helping and I got there and got there quickly uh, it just wasn't, but it wasn't as nuanced as, you know, they were used to, Glenn was used to somebody with Todd's experience coming in and doing the work. And I was, I was so green that it was an adjustment. Right. But one of the things that we, that I, we, that Glenn and I eventually figured out, and, and I'm curious about your experience with this. I can generally categorize particularly choreographers into trying to communicate two different ways. Uh, the first is that they'll say, um, you know, they'll, they'll make reference to the shin busters or the overhead lights, you know, and they try to give me specific tasks. Well, what if it's more from that light over there? You know what I mean? Right. And they try to bypass, right. therefore, unfortunately, trying to bypass all of my years of experience and understanding and, and complete understanding of the plot. Right. And, and the practical terms of how to do this. Or then I'll see folks that are, like you're saying, this one needs more magic, right? Or this one's not romantic enough or not sexy enough or whatever. And they'll go and they'll give you adjectives that are sort of vague. One thing that I, what I said to Glenn was, uh, because he start, he's a helpful guy, but he's not an LD. You know, he danced with the Joffrey Ballet. He was, uh, uh, until Robert Joffrey died, then he went to Europe and he danced for NDT and then he became an artistic director at NDT and then eventually Harvard Street. And, you know, he he is he never studied lighting. And so but he want he thought 
well, if I, you know, in order for me to help Matt, I need to tell him exactly what to do with the lights. Right. And eventually I said to him, like, right, I need, I, I need to help the new kid, right? I'm going to help the new kid. But right. yeah. <laughs> and I, I, we finally got it down because one day I said to him, like, I don't want you to say, uh, like, you have a really good eye, but you, but it's not your job to know the plot. You need to tell me why it looks wrong. And give me some adjectives. It's not intimate enough. We're not focused on the duet enough. The background is too overpowering, whatever. Or just say like, it's not, it doesn't look complete. If you give me adjectives, then I know what you're looking at. And then I'll do the lighting part, you know? Right. And once we hit that stride, it ended up working really well. So what what have your experiences been like with uh, with choreographers and directors as far as trying to establish a language of communication? Hmm. Well, I know that uh, certainly one of the great lessons for me anyway, that I learned from Tom Skelton was that uh, whatever they want, go ahead and give it to them. Yeah. Even if you yourself know that this is absolutely the wrong choice, then the only way that they're going to be able to come to the same understanding or grasp of visually what you're trying to point out to them is wrong, then just give it to them. turn it on, let them look yeah. at it and let them then be able to go, Oh, Nope, that's not right. And then you can go ahead and move on. On the yeah. other hand, it may turn out that what you thought was wrong about it was exactly what they wanted in the first place. Yeah. But the bottom line is that if you are not providing a, um, fulfilling moment for them right. by when they say do this, that you say, no, no, I think we should talk about that. Then all of a sudden you're an impediment. You're mm. no longer helping the thing flow. Yeah. You're, you're putting up stop gaps against it. Yeah. And instead of trying to act as a conduit to help provide a, uh, a continuation or a furthering of the concept, now you're just a door. Yeah. So I think that for me anyway, the the first thing is that certainly I will try to talk and have every conversation that I can sure. can before the case. And certainly if there is enough time, I will try to do some kind of a level setting yeah. session with the choreographer, walkers, some costume pieces and look at different specific moments where we have big changes in uh, the aspect of the yeah, piece. Yeah. But uh, certainly I think that the worst case scenario is when you have no time whatsoever, they've seen no cues set up, you had to pre-cue it in your head, and suddenly not only are they trying to space the thing, yeah. deal with the costumes, deal with the choreographer, they're also trying to deal with the lighting that no longer has anything to do with what they thought they were going to mm-hmm. get. Yeah, yeah. And it can be absolutely overwhelming. So I think, again, for me, a lot of it gets into preparation. And there are the times and the artistic directors when they are so overwhelmed by everything in the job that when they're trying to put up their own piece, suddenly that's just, well, that's one third of an evening. They've got to deal with everything else in the casting and the marketing and the merchandising and the programs and everything else that's surrounding a total production of, say, specifically in this case, a dance piece. They're trying to focus then back on the lighting for their piece is completely secondary until suddenly it isn't. I know I got to see uh, the relationship between uh, Twyla Tharp and Jennifer Tipton for years. Yeah, yeah. Right. And theirs was almost unspoken because they've been doing it since the late 50s. Right. Sure. You know, but I mean, certainly um, Jennifer certainly taught me the fact that if you are talking to the choreographer and the choreographer is trying to explain what the piece is about, but can't really explain mm-hmm. it, 
then there is that point that you as the designer and a member of the creative team, you have to step in and kind of figure out at least for yourself yeah. what you think the piece is. Yeah, sure. And where we go back to a section, what are we going back to mm -hmm. when we're going into a new direction? Where are we going? What is that place? Yeah. What is that environment? Yeah. And I know there was one time when we had a new choreographer coming to American Ballet Theater. Jennifer was designing the mm -hmm. piece. They had had some amount of conversations, but not mm -hmm. enough. And he was uh, trying to do it. We had the full orchestra, dancers in costumes on stage. And uh, and uh, uh, Clark said, well, can we go ahead and take it from that point back there? And Jennifer turned to him and went, oh, you mean the beginning of the second nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, including Clark, uh -huh. is going, the second Oh, my God. Yes, it is. That yes. Go back to the beginning of the second nightmare. Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, because because Jennifer had that clarity in her own head as to how the structure of the piece was formulating, you know, it would have been great if she had had the time to go ahead and express it. But right. she might not have had the time. She might not have even realized right. it until that yeah. moment. You know, when genius is there, genius is there. But uh, I mean, certainly I know that uh, I, I adopt that technique many times when I'm working with choreographers that don't have the ability to really explain what the entire piece of the overall grasp of yeah, it. Sure. And I'll just I, I call that rent a concept. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you go ahead, put down your own beats and where you think it's changing and why it's changing and then go back mm -hmm. to them, whether it is dance or straight play or opera and say, I think the lights are going to change here and it's going to be dramatic, only a slow count. But it, because we are going into the sunset and that is why she needs to come out and sing this song, because it's the revelation of her love for this guy. You know, and that's why I'm going to go ahead. And if they understand that, then at least a they think it's going to be something like a sunset. So they're not going to freak out when it starts going <laughs> lavender yeah. and B, yeah. hopefully it'll go ahead and emulate the um, sub token or sub token, the uh -huh. um, the sub emotional, yeah. the sub emotional feeling that they have Thank you. <laughs> the subtext of it. Yeah of what's happening with the singer and why that's happening and why it's going to go ahead and conceptually fit visually with everything else that they're doing with the performer and the scene at that moment in the show. Yeah. yeah that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, I think that, you know, what we do is so subjective that I think we often get caught up in, uh, what is specifically our experience with the art, the piece, the process, the whatever, and I think that I found that some of the most accidentally excellent choices I've made were because a choreographer or director uh, said something different to me than what I had expected. And I and then I reacted well. Right. Or you made a change and suddenly the choreographer screamed, standing up and screaming, yes, yes, yeah. yes, that's it. Yeah. Why did it take you so long to get that? Was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the pep talk. Yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay. We'll take that as an affirmative. Right. Good. <laughs> now let's continue to move on. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Oh man. And I, I've, I've found also so many different modes of communication too. Uh, uh, you know, I recently worked with Craig Davidson, um, who's a choreographer out of Zurich and he is one of my favorites to work with because he will, uh, he grounds his artistic choices in um, uh, uh, as kind of practical of an outline as he can for a choreographer. You know, he he won't. Uh, he's the only choreographer I've worked with that has sent me 
kind of an artistic concept outline before we uh, wow. before we've talked. I know, right? Like uh, that never happens. Um, we've done a couple pieces. We did a piece for Atlanta Ballet um, called "Remembrance Hereafter," and then we uh, and then he recently um, we did a, a world premiere at Ballet Idaho called um, "Ghost Light." Uh, and in both instances, A, he was a fantastic collaborator, but B, he was sort of like, you know, these are the pieces of music I'm using. I, overall, conceptually, I, you know, I want to follow this kind of of style and, you know, it's going to be in two acts. And, you know, we had a kind of a, for light, uh, um, for um, Ghost Light, we had kind of a working document where he had, and I don't, I don't know if you know the composer Anna Klein, but um, he had an Anna Klein piece and a Philip Glass piece, and both of them are sort of modern classical composers that have that use a lot of repetition. But Anna Klein, in particular, her music changes on a dime immediately. Uh, and, and you know, and th- this track that was twenty minutes, if you put a cue every time the music changed, you'd have uh, you know basically a cue a cue every um, no less than every 16 bars. I mean, it just, right. you know, and, right. and drastic changes, changes in mood, you know, so you have to, you know, we had to take this piece and kind of look at it moment to moment, but also look at it overall. And so we, you know, we had to agree where we thought even just the same musical changes were. Right. The great thing about stage uh, texts and plays it's much easier to go ahead and define those moments because it's right there. Dance, on the other hand, is so fluid. Even with opera, you can go ahead and you've got a score to go ahead and refer to. But in many cases, especially when it's original work or original pieces or original score or something like a Philip Glass. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's on the the 10th repeat. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the 10th repeat. Oh, my God. Uh, I, uh, Dathan, uh, one of the stage managers I've toured with, uh, and he was at ABT, uh, as a production stage manager for a number of years. Um, he, uh, he and I were touring with Jessica Lang dance for a while while I was in New York and, and he was also gigging with Houston ballet. And it was, I think a Steve Reich score, which if you've never heard <laughs> Steve Reich, it's like, Ooh, yeah. it's, it's, it's the equivalent of, uh, of, you know, uh, if, if music were numbers, it's the equivalent of like trying to multiply something, the same number by different exponential components in a specific sequence. That's not a numerical sequence. I mean, it's just. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I got to do a tour with Steve and his group oh, wow. uh, back in 2004 in Europe yeah. and uh, full blown with vo- full video in support because a lot of his stuff is not only mm-hmm. the music and all of the orchestra and all of the singers. Yeah. It's also all of the video images yeah. that basically play as much of a choreography as anything else. Yeah, it's a little like trying to do a making a waffle with a blender. <laughs> you know, it. You, you, <laughs> You, you, the best you can do is if you can figure out how to provide some sort of your own structure in either your mm-hmm. tracking methodology or the way that you are trying to keep up with not only where the music and Steve right. is, but where he's going next. So you can try to anticipate yeah. that. That is the key for that kind of stuff or even Philip Glass yeah. stuff. It is literally counting the number of repeats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, um, Twyla put uh, in the upper room into ABT, and uh, that is uh, 
magnificent and it's a beautiful piece, but just trying to count it out with the stage yeah. manager so that they could go ahead and call it. Because a lot of the cues were 30 counts or 45s and trying to determine when they were starting and when it was supposed to be finished by. Oof, yeah. It was very, very challenging for everybody involved. So, yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff uh, is crazy. But by the same token, you know, you listen to almost any piece of Philip Glass music and it's going to go ahead and bring up some kind of an emotion. Right, yeah. And then <laughs> the ability that he tweaks it so slightly and it can go ahead and flex from one emotion to the next or from one place to a next or an environment to a next. Yeah. And uh that's when it is really fun to be the lighting designer and try to emulate that yeah. or go ahead and bring that to the forefront or go ahead and emulate that or support that or provide the emotional yeah. visual subconscious support for yeah. it. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. I think uh, I find it much easier to, as someone that grew up with two parents that were musicians, I, my way into dance has always been music. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if I can understand how the music relates to the piece, then, then I get it, you know, yeah. but if it's, uh, if it's a soundscape that doesn't have a lot of structure, I've got a lot more difficulty with those. <laughs> right. Well, that's what, that's the first thing I do in those scenarios is get the stopwatch out yeah. and start trying to break it down using the stopwatch to when the punctuation points or when we're changing or altering or flowing from yeah. X to Y or oh, yeah. the transitions and how long those take. Yes. Because otherwise, yeah, you're just at sea the entire time. Right. You know? Yeah. And the, and the longer it goes, the longer it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It's like one of the, you know, I think about this, uh, uh a lot. Sometimes I'll refer to, um, uh, a mistake you only make once. Mm. And, uh, uh, I've had a few of those in my career where I make it. I, and I, as soon as it happens, you're like, I've made a terrible mistake <laughs> and I'll never do this again because this feeling is awful. Right. Uh, uh, and one of them is, uh, is starting, not starting the stopwatch on a piece that I was calling that I could only call correctly against the clock. Oh, you know? Yes. It was one of those, like, I think everybody's done that. No. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and and I, I was go. like, fuck, I forgot to turn on the stopwatch. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the worst feeling. And you are at sea. So uh, uh, let's let's change gears here a little bit, because um, I want to I want to talk about all of the different things that you've done. Speaking of calling shows and whatnot. So I think the the big highlights are you were lighting director at ABT and you did a bunch of lighting direction and touring with uh, uh, all of, you know, all these different companies in New York. Uh, when you first got there, you're traveling all over the country, all over Europe. Um, uh, not just with ABT, but with Martha Graham and Trocadero's. And one of the, one of the things I love about your, uh, your book, a practical guide to stage lighting is the little sidebars that describe you know, practical events that taught you a lesson. Yes. You know, and there's a, sto there's a story in there I, uh, from touring with Trocadero, uh, with Troxit uh, in Italy somewhere on a raked stage where the, a piano went and somebody grabbed the piano and with an umbrella and you've got a hold of their ankle or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working on a rake stage for the first time is kind of uh, certainly um, a difference 
uh, certain not only for you, but also for the dancers. And I think all of those stories are such that uh, uh, after they have happened, that if you are smart, you write them down Mm -hmm. because when you read them, you know, a week later or a month later or a year later, you're going to get something different out of it. And when that initially happened, the, um, I was able to actually go back and find the paperwork for that stop. And, um, it was a fiasco from the get go and in, (laughs) in Italian and in a very small, um, provincial city that was in the uh, middle of the boot heel of Italy. And, Mm -hmm. Uh, my, it was one of our first stops with my interpreter, Chewy. Oh, wow. And, uh, we walked in the door and half the crew was missing. Oh, no. And that included the, uh, the leader of the Mary band. <laughs> what about this? Oh, he's not here. What about this? He's not here. And then finally he showed up and they unloaded all the gear that they had picked up from the lighting shop or the venue down the right. block. And they said, great. How you doing? Okay. Gotta go. And then they turned around and left again. Oh no. And it was like, no, no, we, we need to start doing things. And right. it, you know, again, that gets into the entire, uh, linguistics and language mm-hmm. and ideally having an interpreter that's seen you do the show once very helpful but uh in this case they had to leave the second time because they had to go get the c-clamps and it was in a different location oh man and then and then they came back like an hour later and it turned out they couldn't get any c-clamps at all so (laughs) thankfully someone found a roll of of pipe of uh, plumbing tape Oh, it's like the, the roll of zinc with the holes punched out on regular yeah. indications. Yeah. So we started cutting that up and then putting that around the batten and then bolting it through the yoke of the instrument to at least get the lights <laughs> up on the uh, batten. And <laughs> they they it was a, a an Italian theater. And typically there are no real uh, steel battens in a usual yeah. house. It's all just like one by two. And you scarf jointed them together and tie ropes on them yeah. and pull them out. And Bob's your uncle. So we were... <laughs> You know, I started by just taking pieces of wood and like putting them on the stage saying, okay, from downstage to upstage, that's a border, that's a leg, that's an electric, and then marching my way upstage. And and once the carpenters got that, they went off and had at it. After we found the plumbing tape, then we started hanging the lights. Yeah. You know, then we discovered that we had saltwater dimmers, (laughs) and then we discovered that nobody had gotten any salt or I don't know what, but we ended up having to bring in other racks. And then, uh, it was, it's certainly an exercise where by when you have somebody else with you, Mm -hmm. it's always good because they can a go ahead and pull your back when you're ready to jump off the ledge. Yeah. They can go ahead and help laugh off with it, you know, with you after the fact, boy, that time when you almost jumped off the stage, that was great. (laughs) You know, or to say, help me, what am I missing here? How can I do something different? And when you're on your own, it's a whole different thing. And it's a much more harsher learning experience. And I think that uh, out of all of those, again, uh, being able to write it down and being able to go back and review it later. I know that one time uh, I was in the middle of uh, Switzerland and uh, the master elect was a nice enough fellow, I guess, I I had an interpreter, thank God, but he kept going into the booth to do something rather than coming out and 
running the crew oh, and the man. crew were lost. And this, this was another, uh, when we went ahead and dropped in the electrics, which this time were yeah. pipe and we hung all of the lights and we circuited all of the lights. There were no circuits on the electrics. They had to be flown out and the extension cords were so short, oh, no. they couldn't be plugged in until they were at trim. Oh, wow. So after they got them out, we got them up, we plugged them in and then nothing worked. And then as it turned out, we had to unplug them and bring them down because we had not tested each light oh. to make sure that each one had a bulb. Oh, right? man. So <laughs> the frustration is just building. And finally, I had had enough. Mm-hmm. And I just started screaming at him through a microphone mm-hmm. amplified through the entire theater, <laughs> you know. And I went ahead and I got done and I sure showed him. And I just looked around and I noticed the fact that I had just lost the entire crew. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was one of my big mistakes yeah. where I allowed my emotions to get to me or my frustrations and. And uh, we were able to repair it. We got mm-hmm. it back together. We got the show up. Mm-hmm. But indeed, I know that that entire crew of uh, men and women thought a lot less of me yeah. than had I just continued to somehow barrel through or go to the the um, the fellow in charge aside, go to the booth with an interpreter and just talk to him and say, we've, we've got to work this out better right. rather than letting my emotions overtake me. Now, that was also just in addition to everything else. Mm-hmm. That was the house where the interpreter kept us went new um french but did not know swiss french oh and man so <laughs> we were on the deck and we finally had everything working and said let's go ahead and trim these yeah so we would say uh, uh, hello on the fly rail and she would say and then the guy would lean over and scream and i'd say what did he say and she says I'm not the fly rail. I, I, I don't know why, but he's saying I'm not the fly rail. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, can we go ahead and take this electric and take it up another three meters? Yeah. And after a moment, then the electric would go three meters and stop. We go, okay, that's good. All right, on the fly rail, let's go down to line 23. I'm not the fly rail. It's like, oh, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, after about halfway through, we finally figured out that her pronunciation mm-hmm. of fly rail in her French French, uh-huh. as opposed to the Swiss French, yeah. was translated directly into Swiss French as ashtray. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in, in French French, it's a centrieux, I think. Uh, okay. But there are, uh, there are many French words that start with uh, salt, uh, yeah. C-E-N-T, or that pronunciation. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't tell you, but ashtray. I know that, you know, hello, up on the fly rail, you know, up uh, the yo up on the ashtray. We're not the ashtray. It's like, all right, well, that oh, makes man. perfect sense. Oh, that's brilliant. I uh, uh, I was in I forget where, uh, uh, but I I was not um, always lucky enough to have an, inter- an interpreter. Thankfully, I took a little bit of French in high school and college, and miraculously, it came back to me out of necessity in in uh, uh, touring in France quite a bit. Uh, and we were in one theater and my, my mother teaches, uh, opera diction. So she's a stickler for pronunciation. And so consequently, any language I've ever tried to attempt at all, my pronunciation is pretty good. My grammar is terrible. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> one out of two anyway. <laughs> right. So in a weird way, it's worse than if I had mediocre pronunciation and mediocre grammar, because then at least they'd know what they were getting. Uh, you know, right. there are many times in France where I would say, uh, you know, I would 
I would, where my accent would make them go like, oh, okay, obviously he's really fluent. And they would go like, and I was like, no, no, do small, do small sleep with that. You know, it's like, please, please stop. It's too fast. Uh, yeah. We had a waiter in, in uh, Biarritz do that. And Biarritz is like Basque country near the, oh, wow. near the Spanish border. Uh, and right. their, their French is a very different accent anyway. And also, uh, much at a much faster pace, I think, than Parisian French. But anyway, I, so we're in this theater in um, uh, maybe Vernon, I don't know, somewhere, you know, kind of a mid-sized uh, theater. Nice crew. We're getting everything done, and I and we're trying to trim the legs and the borders. And uh, in French, uh, the word they use for border is uh, frise, as in you know, like sure. a, a carved frise, right? right. Um, but I kept saying frise like the salad. And so, <laughs> and so I, and all day, you know, uh, uh, I, all day I'm saying this and finally we're trimming out maybe the second or third border and I'm just doing it in French. Uh, uh, and I say, si vous, uh, si vous plaît, le deuxième, uh, frise. uh, and the, and the guy in, in the, the centrier, the flyman in French says to me in English, I'm sorry, the word is freeze, not frise. It's not the salad. <laughs> you know, the whole crew just died, myself oh. included. Oh um, my. I mean, yeah. it's brilliant. But it was it was a wonderful moment because uh because it was almost the opposite of what you were talking about. And I've had moments where I where I said something and I lost the crew, you know. Uh, I think right. everyone has done that at least once. Particularly, it's very easy in uh, in situations like what you're describing in Italy or uh, or in Switzerland, or, where, a, or on tour in general. Yeah, you know, yeah. And when you when you don't got no time, yeah, you know, exactly. And you're having to deal with a language barrier in, in addition to everything else. Right. It's, it gets really tough. Right. And then, I mean, the first time that I went to Italy, yeah, uh, I had my shit together, and uh, I knew some Italian, so I pretty much had this down solid. And uh, we got to the first stop, and I sat down with the interpreter, and I said, "So here are all my cue sheets, and I'm going to at this point say follow spot one, you know, fade mm-hmm. up." downstage yeah. right in the yeah. first opening. Yeah. So tell me how to write that phonetically in Italian. And I got it. Nice. So I went ahead and I wrote the entire thing and I had the, all of my pages were covered with, um, with, uh, um, uh, plastic page protectors and everything else. Oh and yeah. Then written with, uh, with a grease pencil on top of it. Nice. And we got into performance and I got the curtain out. I got the sound started. I turned on the follow spots were rolling along. And then I said something in Italian, I thought. And mm-hmm. uh, the follow spot operator went, and uh, I said, okay, got it. And I took off my headset and gave it to the interpreter. And then from that time on, and anytime yeah. I'm in a country where yeah. I don't know the language fluently, yeah, and I mean, yeah. being able to answer any question, I will have an interpreter standing there and I will talk to them and then pre-space all of my calls back an additional 20 yeah. seconds. So sure. they can interpret it. And then we go ahead and use finger motions or mm-hmm. I touch them on the arm to give them the G word for the yep. go. Yep. And then it's happening at the right time. But uh, there is that danger. I mean, you have enough fluency and enough experience to be able to handle French. You know, yeah. I know that I did one tour with uh, Barishnikov where we did eight countries in 14 days. Oof. And 
That's... Every country was kind of brand new. You yeah. Know? Oh. Yesterday, yesterday was Swedish. Today it's Norwegian. <laughs> Ready and go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you uh, have to work differently. Uh, you just have to. Absolutely. And I mean, the basic rubrics of who is in charge, mm-hmm. when do we need to break? Yeah. What is the right time to go ahead and stop for coffee or for lunch breaks or, right. and what are the penalties, right. yeah. you know, and what else is happening in this space that we need to know about? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, we came in for our uh, matinee call on a Martha Graham stop in South mm-hmm. America at like 10 a.m. because we had a one o'clock curtain and we yeah. walked in and they're in the middle of a children's show on our stage. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. uh, hey guys, yeah, all the booms are gone. They've rolled up the floor. All of our scenery is gone. No. They got another show in there. We oh had no God. idea. Oh yeah. And it's a rake oh. stage. So oh. we didn't know in addition to everything else, we'd completely blown it. We hadn't spiked the booms. Oh you know, we had, man. We hadn't labeled the booms. Yeah. So we were scrambling going, yeah. okay, yeah. so do you think this is boom one right? Or do you think this is boom four right? Or maybe boom two left? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. It was madness. <laughs> so, you know, I think knowing the environment, what you're walking into, and a lot of that just comes from experience. But again, it goes back to, is there anybody else there with a brain that can go ahead and help shoulder and pick up the slack in the because yeah. you've got so much going on that can take care of it when you've forgotten yeah. or that you're consumed or distracted by something else that's going on that at that moment is more, you know, emphatic or decisive or needs to be addressed in a more rapid manner. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's to me the, uh, the most difficult part and the, and the, the French thing was kind of, was kind of weird. I, I tried it a little bit in Germany too, but, uh, and I even, I tried a semester at, uh, the Goethe Institute because we had, we were doing a lot of touring in Germany at Hubbard street, but, uh, it still was, you know, it's, it, I still never quite got there with German. It's just, it's just such a difficult and complex language. And also the Germans know English really well, uh, better than, right. better than most other countries. I would say, um, the idea of, um, being by yourself, I'm typically only in that scenario when I am hopscotching in front of a tour. Uh, I've done that in Italy. I've done that in France. And like, it is, you're right. It's significantly more difficult when you are the first person in the theater and you've got no backup and they're, and maybe they, maybe the crew speaks a little English, but they don't really understand it. You know, they just, they know enough, they know the language of theater, so to speak. And they know enough English to, to piece together some fragments so that you guys kind of know, so that they kind of understand what you're saying, you know? Even even being not fluent in French, but fluent enough, uh, right. it was like it was uh, it was a an adjustment in mindset. So after all of this touring, you did uh, <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> no, it's great. I uh, uh, this I mean it goes back to the you know the the touring stank. I I was saying this to Michael Downs the other day. Uh, somebody somewhere said to me, like, one, anyone that's done any touring, you can never get that stank off of you. And I, <laughs> I love it. I, lo- I love the, the, I love the idea of that, you know, because like, yeah, I, I'll meet someone and I'll, I'll go like, it smells like they've done some touring, you know? Yes, they, exactly. Yeah. And you, you get, yeah, you, you, I'm sure you have the same experience. 
Certainly. I mean, I think that uh, for me, at least as a lighting designer, that a lot of that has been done by the foundation of dance Mm -hmm. and the need to deal with that kind of speed. And a lot of the great designers that we've got out there now started in dance. Hal Binkley, he was with with, um, Parsons. uh, Parsons, but before that, he did many years with Paul Taylor. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he was with Paul when I was doing uh, the trucks. So we would go ahead and compare war stories a lot. And I think that the clarity of, you know, don't hang a light unless you need the light, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's one more light that you got to focus. Right. Oh, man. And, you know, you need to, uh, the rule of, you know, stop beating that shutter cut to death. Is there ever going to be a cue when that light is going to be on by itself? Will we ever see that shutter cut? And if Mm -hmm. not, then save yourself some time and move on. Right. If you want to come back and deal with it later, but let's talk big picture. You know, right. if you are in the middle of a focus check and suddenly something doesn't work, what is the first thing that you do? And the typical law is mm-hmm. finish the focus check. Mm-hmm. You know, let's yeah. find out what else isn't working before we start taking any sort of line of troubleshooting or anything right. else. Sure. Yeah. You know, because you don't know what else is going to bite you in the ass and you only have a finite amount of time to get this fixed before we need to go on to the real task. Which isn't yeah. the focus. Test, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I think the, the, I found that, uh, and I didn't, I didn't really understand, uh, what to call it until after it was already inherent in my work process. But the idea of prioritizing, of triaging based on priority, you know, uh, what, what's the most, you know, level of importance as, as opposed to, um, just the first thing that you stumble across, you know, exactly, uh, exactly. Get the big picture, make sure yeah. that you have that in hand before you start taking any action, whether it be, okay, well, while they're doing that, we can still go ahead and get the stage washed or yeah. while they're doing that, we can still, we can still go ahead and start hanging drops or right. whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Able. And then, I mean, certainly when you compare that kind of uh, experience and when I started moving in and started working at the Spoleto Festival, yeah. it was the exact reverse. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden you have all of these companies coming from all over the world coming right. into your theaters and you need to be the proper host. Mm-hmm. I initially came, I came, came to the festival in 1982, I think, or 81, okay. the year okay. of the Falkland War. And the Falkland War, when it sprang up, pretty much canceled my tour in South America with Bally Trocadero. Oh, wow. And my my friend found me despondent on the front steps of our apartment building and say, well, you know, they're looking for somebody to head a crew down at this uh, festival Uh in South Carolina. Uh And I became the head of the uh, crew called Special Projects. Okay. And I did that for a couple of years mm-hmm. then i became john paul's assistant oh. as the assistant production manager for a couple of years mm-hmm. uh and then i think after that is when i ended up picking up the american ballet theater gig and that oh, was a complete okay. conflict at the same time yeah after i left abt then the year after that is when i came back as the uh, lighting coordinator and uh, assumed then the mantle also of scenic coordinator Gotcha. So that I was not only dealing with all the plots, but the relationship of all the scenery around it. Yeah, and sure. also then all of the arrangements and the patterns of movement for all of the scenic changes for all of the different shows for the usually hmm, 17 to 20 different shows in seven buildings. Yeah, crazy, crazy. <laughs> um, 
And I did that. Uh, I was never the production fa- manager of the festival. It was always oh, okay. a, a, a gentleman named Reese Williams, and uh, he oh, just right. recently retired last year. Yeah. But uh, certainly, Reese and I worked hand in hand, armed in arm, and sometimes uh, liquor glass to liquor glass to go ahead and get through <laughs> yeah. all of it, dealing with, you know, seven houses and all yeah. of the heads in each of the houses. And yeah. sometimes we were wet blending and cross blending. Uh, one of our more exciting times together was when we discover after the schedule had been set and mm-hmm. put in the program mm-hmm. that in the theater called the Satilli, which is a sandbag house, mm-hmm. uh, that we were doing a matinee of David Gordon's uh, piece, which I cannot conjure up, mm-hmm. but it was on a bare stage. Yeah. With no masking, yeah. exposed to electrics. Okay. And uh, they had scheduled then the evening performance of uh, the maestro's Maria Golovin with a wraparound psych on a turntable. Oh, my God. And approximately 25, 30-foot-tall walls. Oh, my God. And um, <laughs> it was an exciting changeover, I will say that. But, <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, we had a meeting with the uh, the glue of the festival, a delightful woman named Carmen Covens. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, she said, well, we'll just go ahead and get some champagne. And when you guys miss Curtin, then we'll just get him drunk out in the lobby until <laughs> you guys get it together. <laughs> That's brilliant. And uh, we said, okay, but on the other hand, if we make, if we make Curtin, if we make it on time, mm-hmm. then we get the champagne, right? <laughs> and uh, that became our additional inducement we had probably about 125 people with screw guns and every other tool that you can think of going insane as soon as gordon came down and Mm -hmm. we made it by about 10 minutes to uh spare oh wow (laughs) just to make it funny uh, the amount of uh, uh, scenery on the turntable was so large and extended downstage of the proscenium so much, we had mm-hmm. to install the main curtain about 10 feet downstage of plaster line. Oh, my God. So, yeah. It was... <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Festivals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, incredible or, oh, my God, <laughs> run the other way. So. <laughs> But uh, Spoleto was, you know, was certainly for me another graduate degree because trying to coordinate all of that gear, everything was a rental and um, the number of pieces. I mean, we started off by just doing as much planning as we possibly could. And then they would walk in the door and we go, what do you want to do to by the time that I left, we literally were sending out advance crews to anywhere the show was being performed at least oh, domestically, wow. if not the world, yeah. to go ahead and see the show in its natural environment so mm-hmm, that we could mm-hmm. be ready and understand why they needed the things they needed. Yeah. You know, whether it was uh, puppets or live performers or music mm-hmm. or dance or mm-hmm. plays. Yeah. I, one of the, one of the things that stands out uh, when I think of the, when I think of your work at this Plato festival, uh, things that stands out to me is a, a spreadsheet of paperwork distribution uh, <laughs> that yes. I'm not, I'm not kidding. You show, you showed us this piece of paperwork when I met you at the, uh, that regional USITT thing years ago, but it, I'm pretty sure it's also in a practical guide to stage lighting, right? Yeah. Some form of it is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Which is, it's just for, for those of you that don't know, it's just a spreadsheet literally to say who gets what pieces of paperwork on the production crew, which 
you know, when you're working at a place like the Spoleto Festival, it's really important that people get the information that they need. And there's so much information to pass out that you have to keep track of it with another piece of paperwork. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, after all of the drafting was done, all of the paperwork was done, mm-hmm. all the excels, all the words, all the memos, all of that, yeah. then there was at least a day to two days of just the correct amount of duplication, yeah. then folding up all the plants. Okay, so this is a couple of years ago. <laughs> folding up all the plants yeah. and then stuffing them all into their individual FedEx envelopes mm-hmm. and sending them out mm-hmm. so that folks had them in hand before they arrived at the door. Nice. And had at least some chance to respond and then react and have questions or right, erupt right. or how did you do this to me? <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> yeah. certainly over the years, that transition from that scenario of being tied and limited or hindered or hamstrung by FedEx mm-hmm. to being able to send everything out via attachments, you right. know, and via emails. Right. Yeah. And I left before Dropbox really became a thing because I'm sure that that's where they are now. Oh, where, yeah, I'm sure. You know. Depending upon your password, you can go ahead and gain access to this theater or that company or whatever. And you can then be able to see the immediate uh, responses, reactions or updates to any sort of paperwork as it's being generated or changed. One of the production electricians I am lucky enough to work with on a lot of these larger corporate events I do is a guy named Danny Antolik, who uh, is an old Broadway touring electrician. And he we were on a gig last year and he said to me, we were we were in a large expo hall, and this particular client had uh, had made some last minute decisions that we then had to make changes uh, on site. And it's something that's happening more and more, particularly on the larger events, because the um, because there you know you don't have to wait for paper anymore. So nobody can say, well, the plot's already out, or the design's already you know printed or whatever. Right. You know, and <laughs> Danny Danny said to me at lunch, he said, you know, I miss the time when when you prepped a show and you sent it out. And then by the time you got to open it up in the shop, uh, you know, you'd forget, you'd forget what you did. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? <laughs> I, I missed that time. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. I mean, there was that point in time when indeed you could, you had that punctuation point. Right. Where you, you got it down to uh, ever ready. You went down, you got it duplicated, yep. went yep. upstairs Use their uh, photocopy machine, mm-hmm. prepped your paperwork packages, put them together, mm-hmm. walked down to the FedEx at Union Square, sent it off along with some yeah. sort of a floppy disk and go, that is now out of my life for at least two days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> at least until the other end gets it and calls up and starts screaming, you know, and and yeah. and now you you hit send and then you go, whew, and then the phone rings. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. We just received your paperwork package. It is all wrong. You have ruined the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Damn, damn fine to meet you. <laughs> couldn't, yeah. You couldn't have waited till tomorrow. <laughs> really? You yeah. couldn't have waited until I made another cup of coffee? No, yeah, apparently right. not. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, it's it's uh, uh there are a lot of positives but also a lot of uh, a lot of uh negatives I think with the immediacy of information transfer. Um Absolutely. I mean there's the, you know there's pros and cons to everything, right, but right. you know the, the the basic element of the whole thing is the fact that it, it never stops changing. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. when I started, we were on a thigh resistor light board, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and uh, we went from that to a skirt pan, five scene preset. Ooh. And everyone was afraid that they were going to have to take computer courses to be able to figure out how to even turn the console on. <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, man. You know, and then you fast forward to my first uh, moving light console Mm -hmm. where I think it was Klegel, but I'm not certain where the only way to replicate and see what the level the channel had been set at was Mm -hmm. to move a slider up and down until the little red red LED light above it went off. (laughs) And then you were at the right at where it had originally been recorded into that memory. Oh, my God. Wow. That's bizarre. You know, but I mean, you know, it, it just keeps going. And now, you know, you certainly you look at the EOS environment, right? You know, compared to the MA environment, ca- compared to you know a Hog Four, and right. I, 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 I used to be thoroughly conversant back in Strand yeah. when Palace ruled the world. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. And I knew Palace back and forth, especially when I was with American Ballet Theater. Yeah, but that was just the the cusp when ETC started coming in. Yeah. So then starting to learn that second language with the ETC was Mm -hmm. great. But at ABT, we also got the chance to go ahead and be the beta test. We were board number two. So anytime they came up with a new chip, and we would get that in our console. And sometimes (laughs) we knew about it and sometimes we didn't. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, man. We were at Orange County Performing Arts Center putting up Mm -hmm. uh, the world premiere of Swan Lake. Jennifer was designing it Mm -hmm. and uh, we're programming along. And then she looks and she goes, oh, look, there's a new key. It's called track. How exciting. Oh, no. (laughs) We're we're in Q15. Uh Let's go ahead and record this Q to track, shall we? Oh, man. And so they went, okie dokie, you know, record Q15 track. Uh And all of a sudden, every light in the entire plot seized up to full in a zero count. And the problem was that the code writing was perfectly, except for one little problem, instead oh. of taking the levels at that moment and moving them forward, it allowed every movement of every of every channel from Q0 all the way up to 15 to come back into it. Oh, <laughs> that is rough. That is rough. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I- I think Jennifer's next phrase was, don't go to disc. Don't, don't, record. <laughs> don't you dare go to disc. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Steve, get on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, love, uh, I love hearing stories like this. I really do. Um, one of the, the things that's so interesting about your career, I, I feel like as I'm in my mid-30s, I, I have an interesting perspective as uh, uh, in my high school and college experience, we didn't have the money for the new stuff yet. So I learned technologies that had been there for decades previous to me. But then as I kind of entered the industry, we were really we were really starting to kind of full swing into a more digital version of control of distributing information of all that sort of stuff, right? I, so I so I learned to draft by hand, but have done most of my drafting. Uh, on CAD, you know, I did channel hookups by hand before LightWrite, and then learned LightWrite very early in my career. Right, so all of my practices are very digital, but I got an analog education as well, uh, which uh-huh. I think is to my benefit. Um, but uh, but someone like you has lived through two different versions of having to do your job uh, in a in a very general sense, I guess, or rather one version where it's been transitioning the entire time as you say the only thing that remains the same is the changes right i know that uh, certainly the 
Uh, I think the advantage from having the experience that I've had yeah. and you yeah. to a degree yeah. is that you at least saw how it was done one or two versions before. Yeah. So that when something doesn't work or something breaks or mm-hmm. something doesn't behave mm-hmm. the way that it needs and there's a process that needs to take place, yeah. you can go back to the way that you used to do it, even if you're going all the way back to sure. this is how we did it when we didn't even have computers. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you need an instrument schedule, just start writing it out. Right. Okay, we need to go ahead and get a channel hookup. Okay. Start sorting through back and forth and comparing pages to go ahead and start making the numbers in sequential order. And I know that certainly compared to that, when someone is just trained on Lightwrite Mm -hmm. or has done only, you know, CAD generated plots that has data exchange like Vectorworks to Lightwrite, that when all of a sudden that breaks, Mm -hmm. that it can be it can become a huge wall because you've got no experience to back it up as to how you might do it as an alternate method before these new methods. That's came into play. Yeah. So, um, so changing gears again, I, one of the things that is probably most, um, uh, that, that makes you, uh, the most, uh, famous or infamous as you, I'm sure would put it in the industry is, uh, is your book, a practical guide to stage lighting. Um, mm. I, I would love to hear about, uh, how you kind of worked up to writing the book. Because, you know, those of us that, uh, and I don't remember when it first came out, but it was, but I'm young enough that I, uh, that I was studying the first edition, I think in undergrad, I'm not sure. Um, but I remember being like, you know, reading it and going like, oh yeah, duh. Like, I mean, there are plenty of really wonderful books on lighting design, on stage lighting design. Richard Pilbrose got one right? Uh, Linda Essig has a really good one. And then more recently, your, um, uh, your friend, the, um, I've forgotten her name now who wrote the assistant. Um, Oh, Anne McMills. Anne McMills. Yeah. The, the handbook for the Absolutely. assistant lighting, assistant lighting designers handbook, I think is a title. Um, toolkit. toolkit think, that's but, it. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. Um, shout out to Anne Mills for that. So I, I uh, <laughs> I, I remember, you know, Uh, At some point, it occurred to me that like, oh, yeah, when Steve was doing this, this book didn't exist, right? Like to me, if I ever had a question about paperwork or some of the just the practicalities, right? Oh, yeah, I'll go back to this book. Well, that's why you need a channel hookup or that's why you need a line set schedule or whatever, right? So when I was learning, I all of the practical implementation, I went back to that book. And it's, it's a great book. It's a great resource. It's written well. But but, you know, it never occurred to me that like, oh, yeah, people were figuring this out before this book existed, right? <laughs> All true. I uh, originally, um, the initial purpose of the book mm-hmm. and the reason for the book yeah. was to try to help sell templates. Oh, sure. In 1990, yeah. uh, we started, we had produced the templates. We were selling them mm-hmm. and... Uh, lighting dealers were picking them up slowly and selling them along with lighting associates. Yeah. But we were having a real challenge getting them into bookstores. And I sat down with the uh, gentleman who was head of purchasing mm-hmm. for the big 10 schools, all of them. Oh, wow. And all of the big 10, they all coordinate through one shop yeah. and one guy and yeah. his team figures out all the purchase orders for all the schools and the needs for all the teachers. And I said, how come I can't get my templates into your bookstores? And he said, you're another account. We don't want another account. 
Uh, we don't want the additional paperwork. We don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And so I went, came back to New York and I was talking to the owners of Drama Bookstore mm-hmm. going, you guys carry it, but I can't convince anyone else to carry it. Right. And uh, at that moment, Rose said, well, why don't you go ahead and, and write a book? And then you can go ahead and put the template in your book. Yeah. And then they'll have to buy the template to get the book. And I was like, <laughs> shit, that's great. <laughs> How hard could that be? <laughs> well, <laughs> how hard was it, Steve? <laughs> it was pretty darn hard. Uh, I uh, that was probably 1990, okay. and um, so I, uh, I I finally figured out that what I needed to do was to produce a table of contents, mm-hmm. uh, a sample chapter, mm-hmm. um, uh, a a qwerty, uh, which was a basic. A formulation document saying uh, mm-hmm. this is why it should be published and why I'm smart. Oh, and okay. um, and then to do that, I had to provide some illustrations. And in 1990, mm-hmm. 91, I think uh, I was using Word, mm-hmm. and for uh, drafting, I was at that point using McDraft. Oh wow! Um, so I started writing that, and uh, I wrote it like probably over the course of a year. It took that long. Yeah, yeah. And then. Uh, went with my uh, cousin in Seattle to bookstores Mm -hmm. and just looked at all of the different um, sections and found which sections actually had theatrical textbooks Mm -hmm. and who the publishers were. Since publishers usually just stay within their own domain and found Focal Press and then finally found uh, the editor at Focal Press Mm -hmm. uh, and at a convention here in New York Mm -hmm. and gave my information to her and she said, okay, well, that's interesting. And at the time, uh, what I proposed that the title of the book was to be called Lightspeed because oh, okay. everything about it was yeah. to try to make it all. And they went, yeah, that's nice. No, we think it ought to be a practical guide to stage lighting. And I went, well, <laughs> that's kind of lame and long-winded, right. but okay. So yeah. uh, the initial objective was to be uh, sort of a, a subtitle uh, of uh, How to Tour Dance Lighting. Yeah, sure. Sure. So I started with, you know, talking about booms and how to focus Mm -hmm. and how to hang it quickly, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I I finally uh, got to terms with them on a contract Mm -hmm. and we completed the contract, you know, we'll be due by Mm -hmm. and you're going to write this much. It'll be that long. Yeah. And uh, I was pulling figures out of the air. I had no (laughs) idea what I was talking about. And they said, uh, uh, they said, okay, and now we've signed it and it's done. And I went, great. So now that the contract's done, one of the things I want to do is to be able to go ahead and include mm-hmm. one of my lighting templates in every book mm-hmm. before it goes in the bookstore. So it'll get stone, uh, it'll be sold. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and said, you know, that would have been a really good topic to talk about while we were negotiating the contract. Oh, man. <laughs> And I'm saying, so now the contract's done, you can't do that? And they're going, no. Well, two things. One, we have to go ahead and get an envelope in there Mm -hmm. for the template. Two, we have to put the template in there. Three, we now have to shrink wrap it so that kids can't pry it open and just steal the template. Mm -hmm. You know, or four, we have to go ahead and change the binding. So, no. (laughs) But you can still go ahead and write the the book. Right. (laughs) So, at that point... um, uh, the happy coincidence that my to-be wife was free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to find a, a house down on Folly Beach outside of Charleston. Oh, nice. uh, we found somebody to sublet our place here in New York. So mm-hmm. the cost of a beach house after um, uh, the summer is like 
nothing at yeah, that point. Yeah. So we, we went down there and I like sat by the sea and wrote this for like two months. <laughs> and after about two weeks, I sent something into them and said, so how's this look? Yeah. Am I on the right idea? Yeah. And they said, well, it's okay, but it's kind of specific. Like you're talking about, you know, touring. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could go ahead and spread it out so that it's available to more people than just people who tour. Yeah. And I went, uh, okay. So I started writing some more and then I wrote, sent some in and I said, how about this? Yeah. And they went, well, it's really great, but it's very specific about dance. Yeah. Can't you like broaden and then more people will buy it. Yeah. And I said, so instead of the touring dance lighting, you just want a book about lighting. Yeah. And they went, yeah, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. I worked for about a month and a half and I sent them an initial manuscript and I went something like this. And they said, um, did you read the contract? I said, well, a long time ago, but yes. They said, well, you know, what we agreed upon was like 250 pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, that included like some diagrams and stuff. And then that was going to be the book, mm-hmm. right? And I said, okay, yeah. And they said, well, you said a 600. <laughs> wow. War and peace, and a book on lighting. <laughs> yeah. So that turned into a kind of a discussion, yeah. uh, but they made it, that's when it went to the larger format yeah. and that's when they increased the number of pages to 350 and I still basically had to cut the book in half. Yeah, wow. Um, but then that finally uh, came out in, I think probably 97, no, probably 99. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I was picking up and doing pieces of it from probably 1991 all the way to 97. And for anyone that's ever thinking about writing a book, yeah. uh, the quick answer is no. <laughs> now, at the time when I started to get the idea for the book, the first thing I did was I went out and I bought every single book on lighting I could yeah. find. And I read every one of them. Yeah. And the thing that I found in 1989, 1990 was the fact that uh, it was either somebody's, uh, you know, you know, look at me, aren't I wonderful? Right. Or yeah. here's a bunch of desperate, desperate thoughts that are completely segregated one against the other that in a line of thought make no sense mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, and inevitably, here's some pictures from a show I did. Yeah. Here's a plot from a different show. Here's some paperwork from a third oh, show wow. and none of it tied together. Wow. So I started off by making all of it going to be based upon one show, but yeah. what show? What show <laughs> would everybody know? So initially, it was going to be the dance version of uh, Happy Birthday. And because, uh, you know, and I had little charts and I wrote down and had like little blocking charts mm-hmm. when people entered an exit during Happy Birthday. Mm-hmm. But then um, at that point, uh, I think right around there is where they said, no, we don't want it to be about dance. It needs to be more general. Right. So I, I uh, changed it into a, a show about a single song, in this case, the Hokey Pokey, because I figured <laughs> that at least North Americans would know that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I started working on that aspect of it. And um, uh, it was originally because it wasn't supposed to be dance. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and called it performance art. (laughs) So the original title was Hokey, performance art. (laughs) And I sent it to my friend Sabrina for her to edit it. And she called me up in a complete state saying, how dare you denigrate our art? And I'm going, oh, I didn't mean to. What do you mean? She goes, look, hokey performance art. 
that's what that's what I do. That's what I do. <laughs> Whoops. So that's when I changed it. Yeah. And you've just stepped in it. So that's when it got changed to uh, Hokey, a musical myth. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, it's a dance light plot. Right. But at the time, it had all the lighting systems that you would need for pretty much, you know, generally anything live stage. Right, right. So I went ahead and stayed with that. Yeah. And um, then finally, uh, it uh, after several different arguments, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, discussions, <laughs> um, they there was the entire thing about the front cover. Oh, and yeah. what they say to you is when you say, I'm going to write a book, they go, great, you just get it to us and we'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. And at that point I said, well, you know, I need an illustrator. Right. They went, well, you just go hire somebody and pay them money out of your own pocket and then get that to us and we'll take care of it. Huh. It was like, uh, okay, well, I need a front cover. Yeah. Well, you just get a photographer and pay for that out of your own pocket. <laughs> I mean, we're oh, paying you $2,000, right? Yeah, so, right. You're advancing me $2,000 more like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. So uh, I ended up making a deal with the Joyce Theater mm -hmm. and making a deal, I think, with Garth Fagan yeah. and went down, because I had toured with him on a tour at one point, yeah. went down and we turned on his sidelight mm -hmm. And then uh, Richard turned on the fog machines or the smoke machines. Yeah. So we got a haze. Yeah. And then I photographed all of those different, uh, a bunch of photos and sent them in. And that's what became the uh, first cover. Nice. nice. So, hmm. but like anything that's in the book, other than the index, uh, the glossary, mm -hmm. table of contents, mm -hmm. captions for every, every uh, drawing, yeah. all the text, all of the, uh, how it gets broken apart into chapters. Mm -hmm. Unless you've got somebody working for you to help you do that, right. you're doing that all on your own. And that includes like all the back cover, oh, all man. the advanced copy, yeah. all of the marketing material. And quite frankly, yes, they take care of that, but they get it bound. Mm -hmm. They go ahead and get it into bookstores mm -hmm. and they go ahead and they get it sold. Yeah. But beyond that, that's not their problem. That's yeah. not their fault. So consequently, it is all your bailiwick and it's yeah. your responsibility to do it. Yeah. So yeah. that's how, that's how, uh, yeah, practical guide got started. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea. Now to yeah. add to that, however, yeah. is that in between in 1999 and now mm -hmm. that they have now gotten to the point where, uh, because of the internet and Amazon and everything sure. else, the shelf, the shelf life of any given textbook is about four years. Oh, wow. After the first year, when you, the instructor, have told all the kids, you, all, everybody in this class has to go out and buy that book. <laughs> yeah. And then the bookstore gets them all into, into stock. Mm -hmm. The kids buy them mm -hmm. all. 90% of the kids could give a rat's hat. At the end of it, they sell it back to the bookstore. Sure, yeah. The bookstore pays them a reduced price. Mm -hmm. And then they take those same books, put used on it, <clears throat> put it back out on the rack, and go ahead yeah. and sell that book yeah. for like 50% off the original. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But any proceeds from that go straight back to the bookstore. They never make it back to the oh, publisher. Wow. They never make it back to the author. Oh, wow. So after two or three years, when you've saturated all the bookstores with that addition, mm -hmm. yeah. then nobody's buying the book anymore. Right. Or they've gotten ahead and they've got it online or they've rented it or right. what other schemes have come up since yeah, then. Yeah. And the only way to avoid that is to come out with a new edition. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. So... Yeah. I, uh, when I talk to friends of mine, 
who say, I'm writing a book, you know, I've got some left over. What am I going to do? They're telling me to go ahead and post it free online. No. I advise them, no, no, you keep that in your back pocket yeah. because like it or not, if that has any shelf life whatsoever, mm-hmm. they'll be coming back to you for a second edition. Yeah. And there's the beginning of your new and added material yeah, yeah. because a new edition has to be 25% new or different. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe that. You know, and for me, you know, when they said second edition, I went, oh, okay. They said 25% newer, different. I mm-hmm. went, oh, okay. So I said, everything I've talked about in the first book, none of it has really changed. Mm-hmm. It's all about methodology. Right. It's not about specific gear use. Right. And they went, okie dokie. So I went ahead and I sent her the second manuscript mm-hmm. and they called up and they said, so did you read the contract? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, yeah, a while ago, but yeah, I read it. And they went, so we asked you for like, you know, 400 pages or so. And I went, yeah. And they said, and you sent us 600 again. <laughs> I'm sensing a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and about every time I get a different editor. So at least it's a different voice telling me I'm an idiot every time. But um, yeah, Amy, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Amy... <laughs> Amy Walker, delightful woman, very patient. Uh, But uh, the third edition came out, I think, back in maybe 2013 or 2014. So I'm already hearing the little uh, knocks at the door Mm -hmm. asking about the next edition. And it uh, just, um, it's a hard for me. I'm not a writer. I, uh, I mean... It's not easy. It doesn't come simply. Anything that you ever see in that book, mm-hmm. I've probably rewritten it at least seven times. Wow. Uh, any any diagram that's in there, when I write, I inevitably go, oh, this probably needs an illustration. Mm-hmm. And I'll write an illustration to go, oh, yeah, I should go ahead and mention that in the writing. Mm-hmm. So then I go ahead and add some to the writing. And I go, oh, no, that means, yeah, that needs to be a second, uh, an illustration B in that same series. And then yeah. I do another illustration. Yeah. And then it goes back and forth and ping pongs for you know, some period of time until I get done with that topic and I just move on to the next one. But it takes, takes me forever. It it drives me insane. (laughs) Well, it's useful and it's, and it certainly helped, uh, people like me, uh, when, when, uh, during both during our education and, uh, later in life when we're needing to reference things, uh, it's, it's so useful to have a, uh, to have that book in, in the world and in the profession. I really do think so. So, I'm glad you wrote it. Well, you're very kind. <laughs> I know that, you know, when I was getting along into it and I started, it was like, oh, I should put in a list about this. I should put in a list about yeah. that. And I've got my copy bookmarked. So the page where it's like the international packing list mm-hmm. is like, oh, there it is. Great. Okay. I'll just go ahead and Xerox that. Yep. And now I can go ahead and pack my bags. Right. Yeah. But even that is, even that I've got to update, mm-hmm. you know, what used to be like carry extra floppies or something. Right, like, well, yeah. now it's like, you know, carry extra key sticks and, yeah. you know, make sure that you know go ahead and make sure you've got a couple of spare hard drives in your back pocket before right. you leave town right that kind of stuff so yeah yep yeah it really has the changed. only constant is change <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah agreed i i i'm surprised i didn't know that the impetus for writing the book was to create uh, was to sell more field templates uh <laughs> I, that's brilliant i um i really <laughs> really I really want to tell this uh, this story because it's one of my favorite um, stories in relation to Field Template. I was, while I was at Hubbard Street uh, as the lighting director, we participated in uh, a program called Dance Motion USA, which is a okay. joint, um, it's, I believe it's still going on. We were the second or third year. Um, each year, uh, it's, a, it's a partnership between the U.S. State Department and BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. 
so we were in uh uh we were uh, we were somewhere in Morocco and uh we had a phenomenal uh cultural attaché named Abdella who at one point we were doing a performance on the street and he and the electrician who was hooking up the power for our portable sound system had forgotten to bring uh any sort of wiring tools Abdella broke out his pocket knife and started putting a, you know, splicing the wires so he could put a, the correct connector on the power cable coming out of the light pole. I mean, he was he was phenomenal. Hire him. Oh my god. Hire him immediately. Yes. My word. Yes. It became it became a joke between the dancers and, and me after we got back from the tour. Any anytime we were anywhere else and something didn't go well, we were like, "Where is Abdella?" You know, it's like we're in the, we're in Canada, but oh it doesn't matter. We want Abdella here, right? Nope. So that's right. Oh man, he was great. Anyway, um, uh, so we walk into this theater, and they just you know they had just literally no information, and it was it was at uh, uh, essentially the the you know it wasn't a it wasn't a theater. It was more of a lecture hall that had lights in it, and I walked in the door, and there were. You know, it was it was Abdella and me and two high school kids basically that were really interested in doing lighting for DJ stuff, right? And we were uh, there were worm drive electrics that basically had you know like maybe 30, 30 lights hung and uh, you know six six K circuits and the whole thing. And right. I, your business card is a miniature field template to scale. That's got some Lico's on it and some par. It's it's like a uh, you know a Lico symbol, a Fresnel symbol, and a par symbol or something like that. I unfortunately it's right. broken, so it's in a drawer here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I used it. But I took a piece of graph paper and your business card, and I drafted a light plot by hand that I used to then figure out the circuiting for the place and tell them you know give us a map to uh, to right. figure out how to do the show. And, oh my God. you know, it was the quickest, best way to, to do things. That's what I think of that plot in Morocco when I think of field template. <laughs> uh-huh. <You know? laughs> you're, you're very kind. <laughs> Your replacement will be coming in the mail. <laughs> now, Brilliant. I will counter that with uh, this story that I got from Tom Skelton years oh. ago about touring. Tom went out with Ohio Ballet for a million years. Yeah. He was the resident designer. His partner was the artistic director. Yeah. And anytime that they were out, more, more than not, Tom was there on wow. site. And um, at one point, uh, Tom was working with me at the Kennedy Center and over a Rob Roy mm-hmm. and a Picayune, he told me the story where he showed up separately from the company yeah to a location and he was waiting for the trucks to show up so they could go ahead and start the load in. And it was a high school. There was a janitor and there was some amount of equipment there, but they had their own truck. They had their own package pre-done electrics, pre-done booms, the whole thing. And he gets there and uh, he's talking to the, to the custodian Mm -hmm. and you know, time marches on and the truck isn't there. And he goes, well, you know, maybe we ought to start looking at some stuff. So they go ahead and they pull out all the the instruments and they start Mm -hmm. testing and mm-hmm. stuff and he looks at his watch and the company still isn't there and he's going well we better get going here oh, no so he the cart the the janitor and he go ahead and single-handedly together go ahead and hang the entire oh, show my God. rig together something like booms and everything else go ahead and get it all plugged and everything else and he finally calls back to the office uh-huh. and says so where's the truck we're here in, in the theater and we've got it all set but the trucks aren't uh-huh. here and the office said 
they're set up in their theater over in the next town over. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And Tom, but Tom said he tried to hire the, the, uh, the janitor. He said he was a great guy. It was great. I tried to get him on the crew, but we didn't have enough room for him on payroll. Yeah. But it was a great story. It was like, okay, I haven't done anything quite that crazy, but uh, yeah, that's close. (laughs) Oh my God. I love, I love hearing that about someone as revered as Tom Skelton. uh, Because, you know, I think those of us, those of us that came to lighting, uh, uh, after he had passed and, you know, hear stories about him, you know, he's this, he's this kind of eloquent guy, you know, he's mythical, right? Yeah. He's a mythical figure. Right. Yeah. But in reality, iconic. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, in reality, all of the stories that I hear about him are very practical and down to earth and matter of fact, you know, um, uh, Joe Futrell, whom we know, we both know who, uh, uh, has been a production manager of mine a couple of times and uh, start and actually started uh, in Ohio ballet as a lighting supervisor. I think, I believe at some point, you know, he, so he learned from Tom and he said that uh, one of the things that he told me about Tom was that he, um, his hero was the short order cook, you know, where you're uh-huh. talking about, uh, you know, how you attack things, right. And prioritizing things based on how long they're going to take and when they need to be done. And I think that's brilliant. And like, how, what a sim, you know, a simple way to think about how to set your show up. Right. Exactly. So, getting back to uh, field template, forgive me because by the time I was using, uh, well, by the time I was learning to draft by hand and using lighting templates at all, it had basically been whittled down to yours, and then there was a kind of a generic USITT one in blue, I think. And then if you were really lighting associate. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're really fancy, you had both. And then if you were extra fancy, you had maybe one that helped you draw ovals and circles. (laughs) 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 And that was about it. And if you had any more than that, all true. If you had any more than that, you were a poser. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that template started off uh, at the USITH convention in New York in 1985, I think. And uh, I, it was at the Marriott, I believe, yeah. on 50th. And I went there with my friend, mm-hmm. uh, Todd, and I said, you know what? I think I need a new lighting template. Yeah. And I'm sure it's out there. I just, all I have to do is go out and find it. Right. And so I covered the entire floor. And after mm-hmm. covering the entire floor, I, I realized that it wasn't there. It didn't exist. Oh, wow. Every template that I had had all of the holes drilled so that uh, all the cutout shapes were flushed to the nose of the light. Yeah. They were all flushed to the lens. They weren't flushed to the hanging point. Right. So if you were trying to draft lights going back and forth on your T-square, you were having to move it up and down and up and down the entire time just to draft a variety of lights on a single overhanging electric. Right, right. So I thought, well, this can't be that hard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like your story about writing a book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. All you do is you draw some stuff down, give it to me, and they go ahead and they make it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, over the course of probably four years, I kept. I finally figured out, or someone informed me, that you needed to have two layers, one with the cutouts and one with the graphics. So oh, okay. I ended up drafting them in two layers, and I would go ahead and make a design, mm-hmm. and then I would try to shop it around to different people. I had no idea who to talk yeah. to. No one really pointed me in any real given direction. Wow. Uh, I haven't. I did say it to lighting associates and they mm-hmm. told me that it was going to be too expensive so they rejected it uh in 1980 
what, seven, I oh, think. Wow. I'm working for American Ballet yeah. Theater. I've now been upgraded into using a, uh, a Macintosh, mm-hmm. and I've got an Image Rider printer. Uh, and I have redesigned this and scanned the drawn graphics into the Image Rider's uh, scanner yeah, head yeah. into the Image Rider. And now I'm redesigning it with uh, turning on pixels on and off in Mac Paint. Yeah. And uh, still can't get anybody to, to make the damn thing. And USITT had a competition in Calgary mm. for good ideas. And <laughs> if you sent in your good idea and they posted it, and if people voted mm-hmm. for it, you could win 500 bucks. Ooh. Now we're talking, baby. right? <laughs> so I figured, well, you know, since this thing has earned me so far exactly not one red cent, <laughs> I'll go ahead and do yeah. it. So I gave the files to uh, a young student at USC mm-hmm. who printed it on his new highly advanced laser Ooh. printer. And I got these pages back. They look fantastic. But then somebody told me, well, you can't just send them paper. You have to like mount them on cardboard because nobody's there to put it up. They just walk in and stick it on the wall and that's it. So I was like, oh God. So I went ahead and made little labels and captions and everything Mm -hmm. and and what became the directions. And then I took all of that and uh, my friend Fred Allen had been working at uh, uh, UCLA Mm -hmm. Uh, at Royce Hall, and they had, he said, well, you can go ahead and use the um, the post office area mm-hmm. to go ahead and box it up to send it up to Calgary. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? And I said, it's a thing I'm trying to make money on, and it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I got in there, and I was literally getting ready to do the final wrap yeah. and conceal everything. And Fred walked out of his meeting and looked at it and said, what's that? And I said, it's a lighting template. I can't get anybody to make it. And he said, oh, shoot, I can make that. <laughs> <laughs> and i said well uh if you can get it made mm-hmm. and if we can ever sell more than three if we ever make any money i'll split it with you 50 50 nice. and that's how field template got wow born. great and uh, in 2003 fred said you know they're making these symbols in uh, minicad and uh we should go ahead and do that and i went they've already got the symbols there they don't need mine yeah. and then i looked at their symbols and i went Okay, maybe they do yeah. need money. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Right. And that's how uh, soft symbols started coming about. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we've got uh, those two arms now, um, and uh, uh, soft symbols is now also incorporated into uh, Drafty and to uh, Softbot. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Yeah, great. Yep, and uh, now I'm trying to. Uh, in my spare time, <laughs> try to uh, either update the current uh, soft symbol uh, libraries mm-hmm. or to go ahead and create new ones. I've got a couple of contracts out now yeah. for a couple of new symbol libraries for manufacturers. Great. In 2007, Fred and I went to Plaza for the first and last mm-hmm. time. And I thought, well, I'll go ahead and I'll do the symbol libraries for the manufacturers that are really big there. Yeah. And I had added like another 13. And we got there and we roamed the floor for like four days straight yeah. getting drunk because they don't do swag <laughs> at a plaza. All they have are, are beer <laughs> and a lot of it. And by the end of the fourth day, I had an, a half inch to a three quarter inch stack of business cards. Yeah. There was nothing but every manufacturer of a lighting device or a lighting wow. body or object that I had never heard oh, of. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very, oh, holy shit. We got our work cut out for us now. Yeah. You know, between then and now, it's kind of distilled mm-hmm. down. There's not as many as there were in those Wild West days, yeah, sure. but still, the amount of manufacturing by country yeah. that never makes it into the United States is amazing. Yeah. So, 
You know, it's a constant I got to keep on my toes, but I, at times I just want to rail to all of the manufacturers mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Stop innovating. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. Let me catch up. <laughs> they never listen. Yeah, it's to me, it's uh, um, it makes perfect sense because it's a, it's a continuation of field template into a digital format. Initially, the idea was, okay, so you can draft it with a field template or you can draft it with your CAD program. Right. Uh, at this point, exclusively Vectorworks, pretty much. Yeah. But draft it. But then if you have to make corrections, you can use the field template and it'll be the same size, same scale, same shape. Yeah, sure. That was then. Over the years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we had just the plastic template and you had a lighting instrument that wasn't on the template, right. you would take an outline there and modify it somehow and say, that's the doobie wanger. Right. And yeah. now... Comparably speaking, everybody says, well, we don't have a doobie wanger. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, then make it out of one of the other symbols. They go, oh, no, we need you to make the doobie wanger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Be careful what you wish for. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely understand that. We, um, uh, I do a lot of uh, lighting design and associate work with with Jaeger Design, and I manage their symbol library. And, uh, you know, we, the, the, best and easiest thing, uh, that I could do was to say to, uh, Fabe and Chris, like, Hey, um, there's this Steve Shelley guy and absolutely we should use his stuff because that's going to cut down on my work. <laughs> but also, it, okay. you know, they, um, when I took it over, they, uh, they had probably, they had very good symbols for, um, like Martin and for, you know, for the 10 fixtures that they used over and over again, Color Force strip right. lights, Martin, uh, you know, Mac Viper performances and profiles, that kind of stuff. Very quickly, I mean, the reason that they gave it to me is because they kept like, oh, now there's a new light and we're going to use it on this Verizon booth. And can you make a symbol for me? Uh, and it was, you know, a lot of these were, uh, you know, the line weight was not quite ideal for what we were, you know, the kind of plots that we were printing. Or, you know, the symbols had color, but not all of the production electricians were printing in color. In fact, most of them were printing and still are printing in black and white, you know, and it's not a big deal if you're walking around with a PDF on a digital tablet, but that's not, that's not how we're hanging light plots, right? Right. um, And then also once I dug into it, uh, what impressed me was the, the attention to detail as far as like number of DMX channels and no, uh, you know, notes about the fact that it's an LED lamp and what kind of diodes it has in it, that sort of stuff, the weight being accurate, the, you know, the, um, the beam and the field angle. And, you know, to me, like that sort of stuff is, is, uh, has become just as important. Right. I think slowly but surely it it has. From the initial days of just basically drawing a 2D plot, everyone really has expanded to the 3D into rendering or if nothing else, being able to turn on beams and make sure the pools are big enough to cover what you're trying to cover. Right, right. I th- I think it's it's really interesting, and it also speaks to your to your strengths as uh, an LD and a draftsman and a professional, uh, it, which I which is part of the reason why I think of your superpower as paperwork and and detail orientation. You know, I mean that I'm sure. I the amount of, I'm I'm shocked. I'm continually shocked the longer I do this by the amount of people who uh, who's. Um, who, whose drafting does not match their actual intellect and ability level. Uh, it's not as important, that's all. Right, right. You know, I mean, 
Maybe it's the rendering that's more important than doing the actual drafting, or maybe they've got somebody that is working with them that covers for them. And essentially, even though the drafting is trash, they can still get the plot up in their stead. Yeah. Talking about preparation and number of steps. The first time that uh, ABT went to uh, France, Mm. when I was with them, we went to the Champs-Élysées. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Todd Elmer was acting as my assistant at that time. Mm -hmm. And we had done all the paperwork. We had done it all off the rep system. We had it all worked out. They had this great European system where the first electric on center line was unit one. Mm. And then it went odds on one side and evens on the other. And we thought that that was just the best thing since sliced bread. (laughs) And that continued on the second and the third and everything else. So we went ahead and we channeled everything to that, Mm -hmm. you know, because that was the dimmer. That was the, that was it. Mm -hmm. We plugged that in. Mm -hmm. Then we soft patched everything to that. We got it all put together and printed everything out and it got time to pack and I went my god do I really want to go ahead and haul you know um, a Mac 512e um, to to France because I've already got everything printed out right do I want to haul an image writer with me and the paper and the converters and the transformers like ah, it's already done forget it oh no we got to Paris <laughs> we walked in the theater yeah we walked in to look at their house galaxy console mm-hmm. And we looked at the actual uh, screen because they had a screen that showed the uh, actual uh, the channels being used. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that all of the circles for the first electric, Mm -hmm. that those were those were numbers that were in the same arrangement, but they were on the screen. And I looked at it. And after a moment, I went, so is that not the dimmer number? And they went, oh, no, no, no. Canal. Oh, that was the channel number. Oh man. Oh no. When they did the renovation, yeah. somebody went down to the basement yeah. and they had a whole bunch of cables coming from the first electric mm-hmm. and they grabbed a bunch of them, took a hatchet, literally, went ahead and chopped those off oh, after measuring it to that rack yeah. and then they plugged them all in there and then grabbed another and they plugged that into that rack there. Oh, my God. So the actual dimmer layout was oh. all over the map. Oh no. And the, only way for them to contend with that was to go ahead and repatch it into the channels. Yeah. But the basic fundamental understanding or misunderstanding was the fact that we interpreted that as the dimmer and not the channel. Oh. So to go ahead and repatch all of our stuff to go ahead and work with that, mm-hmm. we needed to go ahead and put their dimmer number in place of where we had put our dimmer number Oof. to get back to our... And I didn't bring the computer. <laughs> oh, my God. So Oof. Todd and I spent like three days, night and day, making instrument schedules, hookups, color cards, yeah. patch sheets, everything from scratch by like, longhand. Oh, by longhand. Oh, man. <laughs> chanting, I will never be this stupid again. <laughs> and oh, that's only man. happened rarely since. Yeah, rarely. <laughs> <laughs> it's only happened rarely since. It's like, oh, wow, first time since Paris. <laughs> Fuck that up again. Oh, my God. Speaking of mistakes you only make once. So many brain cells, <laughs> so little time. <laughs> thank God thank God for Todd Elmer. I tell you, yeah. it was... It was certainly a trial by fire, and uh, he came through with a plum. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we burned a lot of brain oil on that one. So, (laughs) Oh, my God. That sounds excruciating. It really does. (laughs) It was. (laughs) 
you know, it's one of those stories that you go ahead and you try to include into something like that book. Yeah. And it's like, how could you go ahead and explain that to somebody who hasn't been <laughs> at least doing some of this or have some familiarity with it? Like, yeah. We don't want them to run and leave skid marks. We want them to actually buy the book, Steve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. All right. It's so funny to me. And this story makes me think of it that, uh, you know, we so rarely spend time uh, in this industry talking about uh, when things went well. And we spend so much time talking about when things went horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> you know, I think I'd love to touch briefly on what you're uh, what you're working on now and where we can find you. Uh, uh, it's been really fun to have you. I think we should maybe start to wrap it up. <laughs> okay. Well, certainly at about seven o'clock every night, yeah. you can find us outside of our apartment building on our stoop between 94th and 95th on Amsterdam, yeah. whistling, hooting and hollering all of the first responders and everybody else that's uh, yeah. saving our bacon in the middle of this mess. Oh man. But, uh, so important right now. Absolutely. Um, in terms of projects, I am trying to balance four of them. I've got some mm -hmm. uh, soft symbol projects. Yeah. I really, really need to force myself to go back and start looking at uh, first the um, updated edition to Practical Guide to Stage Lighting. Mm -hmm. And uh, a second book that I had started, but then I put aside for whatever reason I can't remember, mm -hmm. which was a practical guide to starting a career in uh, freelance technical theater. Oh, Wow. Great. I um, I'd been doing a uh, basically a PowerPoint uh, show for uh, KCACTF for some number of years, and yeah, sure. finally decided to write it down. And it's about three to hundred to four hundred pages. Yeah, but uh, I need to finish writing it, and more than that, as always, the bugaboo finish illustrating it. Yeah, sure. So Makes I've sense. got that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of crawling up the backside. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in the immediate future, uh, once we get done with today's interview, I think I'm going mm -hmm. to be going back and trying once again to try to file for unemployment. <laughs> yeah, like the rest of us in the industry. <laughs> you know, initially, I thought I was a dead dog because uh, mm -hmm. I back in the day, if you didn't have 20 weeks of W-2s yeah. that you didn't even bother. And last yeah. week, Todd Elmer, once again, saving my bacon, <laughs> informed me that, well, they changed that. And indeed, if you do have some number of 1099s, you can go ahead and use that as a basis for trying to file for unemployment as well. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Illinois, they're, they're asking us to apply for regular unemployment and get rejected. Uh, so essentially as evidence that we are uh, sole proprietors and independent contractors so that we can then apply for the PUA, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, that is specifically for uh, gig workers and oh. 1099 workers. So, uh, Well, if this doesn't work out in New York, I'll, I'll have my bags packed. I should be there by morning. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, well, I, I've had so much fun having you on, Steve. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, it's been a great time. I've had it as well. And, and certainly hearing some of your stories and certainly sharing experiences. You know what? It's all the same. I think, uh, I think a lot about shared language in my life and my career. And you're someone certainly who I share a lot of. I have a lot of shared language with, you know, um, which make, is why it's so enjoyable. Absolutely. Well, it's always a delight to go ahead and yak with you on any topic, but by any means, if you or anybody else would like to get back in touch with me, uh, the web page is fieldtemplate.com. The uh, web address is Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, 
at fieldtemplate.com, or there's always the old dependable Mr. Template at earthlink.net. All right. Thanks for being here, Steve. Absolutely. Thank you and best wishes and best luck to talking about the industry, my friend. This has been another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to find out more about Steve Shelley and his work, please visit www.fieldtemplate.com or you can reach out to Steve directly at Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, at fieldtemplate.com. And if you're interested in purchasing a copy of his book, A Practical Guide to Stage Lighting, it can be found on Amazon and wherever textbooks are sold. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.